Yeah, I gotta, I gotta confess, I'm not really across the classics. I didn't learn it at school, so it's kind of my Achilles heel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we are discussing one hell of a book, Eric, or as perhaps it should have been titled, Too Faust, Too Furious. And our guest is freelance cartoonist Georgina George Rex Chatterton. Welcome, George. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're very lucky to have you because you're normally not in Melbourne. No, I'm an Adelaide Ian. I've been on an artist residency with 100 Story Building, which is a kids writer centre in Footscray, who do amazing things. And I get to work with a cool guy called Ben McKenzie. Oh, Ah, who's that? Is he the one from Gotham? Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. I had no idea that he ran (laughs) workshops. He's really, really, you know, likes working with kids. Amazing. (laughs) We met in nerdier circumstances than this. It was in Newcastle at the National Young Writers Festival. I was doing a workshop introducing people to Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games in general, and George was one of the people in the workshop. Yeah, and it was so exciting, I made a comic about it. Yeah, I was, that was in a comic. Mm. I think that's the first time I've ever been in an actual comic. And it was my first 24-hour comic, which is a comic you write and draw in 24 hours and has to be 24 pages. And Thanks you, for helping me get through that experience. Oh, I'm, I'm very happy to. Um, and that's that's been quite a thrust of your work, actually, is autobiographical comics, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. My main focus, I yeah feel much more comfortable telling stories about myself than making them up for some reason. Ah. Hmm. Well, we're here today to discuss Eric, which is a Discworld novel, and we discovered that you were into Discworld because you drew about it. I did, I think, because mm. of your amazing podcast. It's just so circular and great. Mm. Oh, that's, everything is related, folks. Don't mm-hmm. let anyone tell you otherwise. <laughs> Time is a flat disc. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so we, we saw your illustration of uh, Angua mm-hmm. and Gaspode yep. uh, after you listened to our first episode. And we are like, oh, George likes the disc world. And it's really popular in your house, isn't it? Yeah. So I've done other fan art before. I've done Tiffany and I've also done The Hogfather. Um, and it's because, uh, my parents, basically my dad super duper loves Terry Pratchett. And ever since I was very little, he has read the books to me just like, I think from when I was about six or seven, he started reading various books. Um, so it's just been part of my life ever since then. I brought this, which is my, my book death based oh. on death from oh, Terry Pratchett oh that I wrote when I was seven, what? but oh it, it has nothing to do with the Discworld, but it was clearly inspired by my parents reading me. Any oh, Terry I'm Pratchett sure this book. This is a luggage. Yeah, yeah. like it's just. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Oh my! We had to create a character, and I chose death. This is. We great. had to create it in like clip art. Do you remember that? Oh. Like, as in not like as I can't remember what it was actually called. Yeah. But it was like a clip art thing, so you'd take like flag, like it had flags for arms, like it has pirate flags for arms, fully illustrated, mm. like the book we're looking wow. at today. Somewhat more accurate than some of the pictures, but I guess we can get into that later. Oh, harsh, but fair. But I'm sorry, fair. but wooden horses don't turn their heads. I know. I know. I, I, I know. Maybe there's like an intricate rotor system. Oh, yeah. Could be. 
Um, Worth it. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like we're ready to get into a discussion of the book. So we'll kick it off as we always do with a reading of the blurb. Eric is the Discworld's only demonology hacker. Pity he's not very good at it. All he wants is his three wishes granted. Nothing fancy. To be immortal, rule the world, have the most beautiful woman in the world fall madly in love with him. The usual stuff. But instead of a tractable demon, he calls up Rincewind, probably the most incompetent wizard in the universe, and the extremely intractable and hostile form of travel accessory known as the luggage. With them on his side, Eric's in for a ride through space and time that is bound to make him wish quite fervently again, this time, that he'd never been born. Oh. Makes it sound a lot more awful than it is in some ways. <laughs> yeah, really. I have several bones to pick with that, um, and then we can use the bones to throw into the summoning circle to um, summon <laughs> summon the book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yep. But first of all, I have a bone to pick with the idea that he's a demonology hacker. Like mm. he, he only really does one hack. I wouldn't say that's his defining feature. There's plenty of other things you could say about Eric, and also they get the wishes wrong. The wording is very important with wishes, and so I'd argue that what they've got on the back there doesn't line up with what happened in the book. Well, that's true, but do blurbs always line up with what happens in the book? Not even a little bit. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it's on form for that, at least. Yeah, so corrected its incorrectness. Yeah, okay. All right, that seems fair. He's not really referred to as a hacker in the book, but there are a couple of gags that do paint him that way. But remember that the book was written quite a long time ago now. But I've I've seen The Net with Angelina Jolie. I think I know what a hacker is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. no one's hacking the internet in this book, is what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> because the clacks aren't in this book. <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's yeah. right. This is 1990. You know, this is, this is a good six or seven years before most people had the internet. Yeah, but actually it had been in- invented at the same time as the book because the book takes place at all times, past, present, and future. <laughs> That's true. A, that's the whole point of the book. That's so. tr- okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay. You got me there. Yeah. But it opens on quite a lovely scene, and it's one. It, we've got several different editions of the book here, um, and the, the original illustrated one is a large format book uh, with a much longer blurb, actually, which gives away most of the points of the plot. But I love the first illustration in the book, and the first scene actually is quite glorious as well. Bees. I know bees. <laughs> Are we fans of bees here? Yeah, always. Yeah, I'm a big bee fan. I love, I love a good bees. Wasn't like, wouldn't we all die without bees? Isn't that the thing? Yeah, yeah, we, we would. Colony collapse. Maybe this is why colony collapse because death has them all. Mm, it makes sense. Oh, everyone would be dead without bees. And he keeps getting them trapped in his skull, which I found quite a delightful image because he had that whole <laughs> thing about headaches. Yeah, was <laughs> buzzing in his head. But he is wearing a he's wearing a beekeeper's outfit in the book. Although he's not in the illustration. The first of many discrepancies you have a bone to pick with. <laughs> That's okay. A bone to pick with death is a That's, good one. <laughs> seems appropriate. But he still manages to get a bee in his head, even though he's dressed appropriately. So, yeah. Yeah, they're not the normal sort of yellow and black stripy bees. They're, they're black and black stripy bees. Or they're supposed to be. Actually, the whole illustration is beautiful, but it is not in different shades of black. It, it really does not resemble the description much at all. But it's a beautiful piece with death staring at the bees. We're there in Death's Domain, though, for a reason, and that's because Death hears something. There's the sound of feet running and then a voice which says, and and again, like we were kind of surprised when we were reading Dodger last episode that there were real swear words in the book. But in this book, it actually says, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. 
Am I just so aggressively Australian that shit did not register as a swear word to me? I was like, oh, yeah, this is all fine. Well, you know what? It, did, it didn't register as shocking to me in any way, except normally on the Discworld they say other things, like bugger mm. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or damn and blah. Like, they say very Victorian sort of... Well, what's name? Um, Yeah. Millennium Shrimp. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Maybe it breaks the fantasy for you. A little bit. Yeah. I think that was what it was. Mm. And it's not something I remember... Rinswin saying before, mm-hmm. but I still, you know, I thought it was very in character though. I think mm-hmm. if he was a real person, he'd absolutely say that. Yes. <laughs> As would we all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what did you think of the first scene, George? It just feels like a calm before the storm for me. Just enjoy mm. like death, hang, hanging out with death. I could just hang out with death all the time, to be honest. He's pretty chill. Is he your favorite Discord character, do you think? Big question. Definitely as a kid, Rincewind was my favorite. Did you like evolve away from Rincewind or did you just find other people... Like, yeah, I think it was more like the the uh, evolving of the world because mm. I think it wasn't even the first books that I was read. I think I was Weird Sisters and Guards Guards mm-hmm. were the first books that were read to me. But yeah, for some reason I just really locked on to this hero that was really terrible at his job, loved running away <laughs> and just had like effectively a giant dog mm. as a companion. And I was like, this sounds pretty great and magic. Mm. Gotta love a bit of magic. Mm. But he also didn't have much like as the stories went on, I didn't actually enjoy his stories as much as the other stories, even though I liked him as a character. Um, Strong agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I have to admit, I'm liking them a lot more reading them again than I thought I might. And I really liked them to start with. Mm-hmm. But one of the things interesting is, you know, he's continually painted as this incompetent wizard. And yet in this book, for the third time, it's a major plot point that he's suddenly able to do magic. <laughs> and I'm like, I think Terry Pratchett has realized that, having a wizard who can't do spells is kind of a bit annoying. <laughs> yeah. I'm the opposite to you, though. The more I read Rinsen books now, the less I like him as a character, oh. and the less I like the books now That's, as an adult. Okay, fair enough. But before we get to Rincewind, who is yet to be summoned, That's we have true. to do the other summoning because Ankh-Morpork and the university are being also overrun by this running and these voices, or this mm. one voice. And so the librarian's fine with it because he's, like, just chilling literally in the mm-hmm. near the cool vats he's, of erotic books. Yeah, he's mostly cool with it until he mm-hmm. falls into one of the vats. Yeah, but it's okay because he's an orangutan, oh, so, yeah. yeah, he doesn't get erotic booked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was one of the first footnotes in the book, too, talking about the difference between something being erotic and something being kinky. Yes, the difference between yeah. using a feather or using a chicken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I thought that was very funny. But um, they're all disturbed by this disruption. And so the head wizards, including their very elderly new arch-chancellor because of all of the Mm goings-on, decide that they need to do something about it. And to do that, they're going to have to perform... The Rite of Ashkente. (gasps) Which they do do this all the time. Which, fair enough, like... You know, it's a cool bit of magic to do. But on the other hand, maybe you don't want to talk to death every day. (laughs) Uh, And it does talk about in this book how the wizards are a little bit like, we don't really like doing this. (laughs) I mean, we don't really want to attract his attention, but he's probably the only one who will know the answer. There's a great bit where everyone's thinking what they should do, but no one wants to say it. And it's like, there was a silence, the special kind that you get after a really unpleasant noise. (laughs) (laughs) We don't want to do the thing. Oh, we've got to do the thing. Um, So they do, they perform it. um, And death does show up. Although not in the circle where he's supposed to. (laughs) What are we waiting for? (laughs) Yeah, such a good moment where he's just standing behind. You can just imagine like turning around. (laughs) He's there behind us. And then they ask him, would you look, do you mind? And he steps into the circle. As long as they promise to not do any more of this foul fiend business. Mm. Yeah, Mm. He's he's quite a considerate person, death, really. Yeah. Mm. Although it made me doubt the efficacy of the entire ritual because it's not just supposed to make death show up. It's also supposed to like 
bind him safely so he doesn't <laughs> kill you all. I but mean, he doesn't not, do that. Not yeah. that he would do that anyway, so I guess it doesn't matter. Yeah, well, Death's usually doing the thing that people expect. Isn't that his whole persona? Like, mm-hmm. So what you think's going to happen with the Death Summoning ritual is what happens, except if he's got a head full of bees that he's just... <laughs> <going out. laughs> Then maybe that's it. Maybe it's the bees that have distracted him. He's bee drunk. <laughs> but he knows exactly who the, the voice and the feet noises are. It's Rincewind, the wizard, who we last saw in sorcery getting knocked into the dungeon dimensions and bravely staying there while getting Coin, the sorcerer of the title, to go back into the real world and undo the magic that he'd done that had opened a portal to that terrible place. And the dungeon dimensions show up in so many of these early Discworld books as this horrible, like, other world where these creatures of horrible shapes and forms collect around the light of the real reality. I've kind of felt a bit anticlimactic that he's just running away and we never really find out what's going on there. Mm. He's just running and mm. he's just been running for that whole time. And we don't know, like, what has he had to eat? Uh, where has he been? Like, what is it like there? And uh, why can we hear it? Like, the dungeon dimensions are always sort of just next door, but you don't normally hear them. So how come we can hear him? And I guess those are all questions that don't really matter to the narrative. But I was thinking them as I was reading this book going, mm. oh, I kind of want to know more about what was going on there. Mm. Well, we never find out, but that's all right. <laughs> Because suddenly he's plucked from there and he finds himself in a strange-looking room where there is what he learns is a demonologist who has summoned him, thinking that he's a demon. And here I really relate to Rinswin because he goes, oh, well, I guess I could be dead and maybe I am a demon. Because, I yeah. mean, I'm I'm here and, like, so the context is telling me one thing, so who am I to deny that? <laughs> so he has that moment of, like, okay, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, okay. why, why would I be in this summoning circle in front of a demonologist if I wasn't a demon? That makes no sense. Yeah. So, yeah, he has that moment of doubt. And the uh, demonologist keeps avaunting him and telling him all this stuff, but there seems something a little bit off yeah, about the, this Yeah, there's something missing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't figure it out before uh, he is presented with the demonologist's wishes. He wants three actual wishes, which I always thought was more of a, a genie thing. Yeah. But I guess if you summon and bind a demon, the whole point is that you try to get it to do what you want and it tries to subvert your wishes so that you do what it wants and that's mm. the, the essential demonology divide. Although Faust basically got as many wishes as he wanted and that's what this book is, large, well, partly a parody of, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. well, Faust, what was it? He has a certain amount of time to do what he wants and then his soul belongs to Mephistopheles. Well, not mm. Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles is just a middleman. But <laughs> That's right. to the Satan? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. Well, depending on which version of the story you read, although they're, they're largely in agreement. No, they're not. Like, as, like, <laughs> isn't it? One's no, like he not. lives happily ever after after yeah. he's like, oh, no, I'm sad that I drove my girlfriend crazy, mm. so I also get to go to heaven. The other one's like, no, no, he goes to hell. Like, I mean, it's a bit different. Mm. And she does a lot of begging on his behalf as mm. well when she's up there. I'm like, let him go to hell. Oh, <laughs> yeah. See, I, I'm really most familiar with the Christopher Marlowe play, which doesn't have any of that business. I read the Wikipedia article today, so I mean, so who of us is more Me across too. it? <laughs> <laughs> well, both of you, for obvious reasons. Here we have a demonologist <laughs> who wants these three wishes, and they're, they're pretty boring wishes mm. in a way. I mean, they're grandiose kind of wishes. Um, which we read out in the blurb, but that, that's not what he actually says. Yeah, is what, it? what he actually says is, I want mastery of the kingdoms of the world. I want to meet the most beautiful woman who has ever lived. And I want to live forever. This is classic 
wish granting behavior where you try to think out your wishes and make sure you word them in such a way that they can't be misinterpreted. But he definitely has not done that. He's mm. just kind of like pulling them out of thin air. Well, he's, he says he did that. I reckon his process was like, okay, we got three wishes. What do I want? I want a new football. No, that's not good enough. <laughs> um, yep. I don't know. Maybe I want to, do I want treasure? Do I want to live forever? I don't know. Mm. And then he thought long and hard about what he wanted to wish for, but not how he was going to wish for it. I suspect is what happened. Yeah. Like, but wanting to live forever, that one, you can screw that one up for someone in so many ways. Mm. Um, we'll find out the particular way in which this one gets screwed up also, soon. why would you want to? Yeah, I don't know why. I've never had any inclination. And what happens when the universe ends? Are you just like it, floating into nothing by yourself? Yeah. Well, is that the end of ever? Do you continue aging? That's my biggest thing with the forever thing. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. if you just keep getting older and older... Mm. It's going to be very unpleasant yeah, forever. You'll get older than anyone has ever been and then who knows what will happen to you. That happened in an episode of Doctor Who and then they kept him in a cage. <laughs> oh, yeah. He looked <laughs> yeah. like Dobby. Yeah. <laughs> that was terrible. But uh, David Tennant got the week off, I guess. So Yeah, good. <laughs> well, my job's been done by some CGI. <laughs> Hooray. It's not a big thing that people want on the Discworld. Maybe they're all smarter than Eric. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to say. But, I mean, to be fair, like, he's got a reason. He has, he's not that worldly for various reasons, but there's one really mm-hmm. big reason. Yeah, because Rinswin finally works out what's missing. Mm. Facial hair. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, facial hair. <laughs> there's great, in all the illustrations in the book, you can see the hooks on his beard. Yeah. Which mm. are great. If you look really closely, the first one, it's not as obvious, but then it hasn't revealed in the book that he's just a little kid. Um, and do we, how old is he? He's 13. He's mm. almost 14. Yeah, yeah. So he is a teenager <laughs> in the standards of the world of the Discworld, sort of Edwardian medieval weird sort of mashup, but a lot of people are like married by 16 or 17. That gives you a bit of a different context for what we would consider it, but he's still, he's still very much <laughs> well, freshly he's, teenager. He's the same age that um, Adrian Mole was when he started his diary, so if you want to sort of get an <laughs> insight into what's probably going on in his head... Oh, wow. Now <laughs> imagine re- the secret, secret demon summoning diary of Adrian Mole. <laughs> yeah, because if Adrian Mole lived in this world, this is exactly how it would have turned out. This is mm. exactly what he would have done. So um, basically, Rincewind is set on yet another babysitting quest. What is it with him and kids? Versus <laughs> Coin, now it's Eric. Yeah. <laughs> He's not having much luck, is he? Yeah. Uh. He just has to deal with these troublesome boys with too many powers that their age can't help them with. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he gets left alone in the room for a sec, and that's when one of the few sort of hacker jokes actually happens, uh, because Rincewind finds and looks at the book that Eric's been using to summon demons, which is, I'm going to try and uh, uh, pronounce it, the uh, Maleficarum Sumpta Diabolite Ocularis Singularum, the initials of which are MS-DOS, <laughs> which uh, for those younger listeners of the podcast was the operating system before Windows, um, or indeed concurrent with early versions of Windows. <laughs> Uh, MS-DOS standing for Microsoft Disk Operating System. So there's a bit of a joke there. And it's some really terrible faux Latin, uh, which more or less kind of means the control of the one-eyed demon, something like that. Hmm. It's hmm. a bit, yeah, so, which is a bit like sort of, hmm. <laughs> is, there, <laughs> is that a joke about teenage boys, I wonder? Oh, no. I don't know. I think you're right, but also, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree on both counts. Is he supposed to be there, Rincewind? This is the question posed by the plots. It's like, why is he here? It's a mystery we don't know. And the Lord of Hell is not real happy about it. All right, so let's play my favorite game, pronunciation. <laughs> How would you pronounce the Lord of Hell's name? It is spelt A-S-T-F-G-L. I'm going to go with Asphagul. Asphagul? Look, I would go with Asphagul. 
And mm. I, I, I quite enjoy this name because it's almost but not quite someone's just typing the letters across the keyboard. Mm. <laughs> what do you think, George? Yeah, Astfigal. Yeah. I mean, mm. Astfigal. Mm. Astfigal, <laughs> really maybe? Oh. Astfigal? Mm. Or in our world, um, Ast. Mm. Oh, yeah. Because we don't have fingals. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's not really he's not really happy about it. There's a wonderful illustration of him before the one of Rincewind being summoned where we see him in all his finery because he's described as wearing essentially an old school Halloween demon's outfit mm-hmm. with the red silk and the little horns and he's got a pitchfork. It's ridiculous, but I kind of love it. I couldn't stop picturing him as, um, not Mercutio, the other one, the one that um, Juliet's mum's boning in Roman Juliet. Tybalt. Oh, t- what? You know, Tybalt in yeah. the Baz Luhrmann one, he wears like a yeah, Satan yeah. outfit. Yeah. And so I basically just kept oh, imagining yeah. him as, as that because he keeps, because um, Pratchett keeps going on about how it sensuously rips and no. stuff. So it's like, it's a bit sexy while he's also this really sort of stick up his butt manager type. Yeah. Mm. With yeah. like a Newton's cradle on his desk and motivational posters everywhere and just mm. filing systems, filing systems, filing systems. I just, yeah. I just couldn't not imagine him wearing a pinstripe suit jacket. With, like, big shoulder pads. Really big, <laughs> pointy shoulder pads. Like, with the Satan stuff underneath. Hmm. Um, like a bookie from the 20s. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, that makes sense. And they're probably I... all in hell, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well. Eric is coming back from breakfast that his mum has given him. He's brought some kindly for Rincewind. Rincewind has befriended uh, what he thought was a taxidermied bird, but is is a bird that says Polly want a cracker instead of saying hmm. And he's quite sassy, really. Befriended? Like or met <laughs> Befrenemied? Yes. And he says Was name an awful lot. Yeah. Mm. Parrot. He even says at one point, I'm the real McWas name. <laughs> which I thought I thought was great. Because yeah, uh, he's got a really small what's name yeah. dictionary. That was, yeah, that's got all the words in it, sure. Yeah, right. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh you know, I really I enjoyed that a lot. Um and he's you know, and he, he's a parrot. He's been around since the time of Eric's granddad, who is the original demonologist in the family. And that's where Eric's found all the books and uh, has not been dissuaded from playing with them by his parents. Uh, and there's some there's some parenting advice <laughs> in the book. It's like, uh, you should probably uh, keep more of an eye on your kids and not let them summon demons in the attic, guys. Practical parenting advice. I really like that his granddad was kind of the good demonologist, but he's still a bit crap. Like, he's the one who tries to summon a succubus who's going to, like, give him a really good good time but he ends up summoning the thing that has a headache at you it's so like yeah. the standard isn't exactly high in this family yeah yeah that's true uh so summoning something that's not even a demon uh, is pretty much par for the course yeah but he demands he, he doesn't believe rincewind when he says he's not a demon um and he gets really annoyed when rincewind figures out he's just a kid uh and because like no 13 year old wants to be told they're just a kid particularly when they're trying to do grown-up stuff mm. and yeah they have a bit of an argument which leads to Rincewind saying, as he has said in similar similar circumstances, look, I can't just snap my fingers. I mean, look. And then they disappear and appear somewhere else in quite a precarious position right above the Discworld. And this is one of the greatest illustrations in the illustrated version of the book, actually. There's this beautiful picture of the Discworld on the back of Greater Tuan with sort of foregrounded the luggage with Rincewind and Eric and the parrot sitting on it looking down. And it's it's a pretty impressive illustration. Hmm. Yeah. Perspective's but, out, but yeah. <laughs> and we, how are they breathing? Yeah, well, this is a good question. Um, but it's magic. It's magic, Liz. Fine. <laughs> but, George, you, you'd say the perspective's out on this picture. What, oh, what's that was your... a very terrible joke that I didn't. It just came out. Sorry. No, I'm fine <laughs> with it. Is, it. is it true? Is the perspective out? 
Oh yeah, but it's, it's an illustration. It doesn't this, in this particular case. It's a stylized illustration that it doesn't mm. need a perspective. It's just more like the tower is almost as big as an elephant, height wise, oh, and things true. like that. It's just also more the, that more thing. The sun in makes the ratio. confusing too. Mm. But anyway, they can see the whole thing, which is quite amazing. Like, what a view that would be if you could see the whole world. It'd be like being in, in orbit above the Earth and looking down. And of course, you know, in this case, the Earth really is flat, so mm. uh, that there's no arguments there. But uh, this is this is a bit weird. Why are they there? This is not part of the wishes. Or is it? Is this a classic wish misdirection? Well, because he can see all of the kingdoms, I guess Brinsman just kind of decides, yeah, this is yours. I've done the thing. Yeah, yeah. You're master of them all. Look, you can see them all. That doesn't really cut it with Eric. Yeah, he wants to have a closer look. He does. Because he doesn't just want to. Yeah, he doesn't just want to stand up there and be, you know, lorded over everyone by looking at them. He wants them to pay him tribute and tell him he's the best. And so they go to a... A specific place. Does he click his fingers again for this? He does, doesn't he? I think yeah, so. I think so. Uh, and they end up in a part of the disc we have not been to before, and I'm pretty sure we never return to again. <laughs> this is in Clatch. It's in a, hmm. a distant part of Clatch. And it is sort of, yeah, like the equivalent of the Amazon rainforest. They are in the Tezuman Empire. And suddenly they are approached by people with chariots that are not very efficient, because they've invented the wheel, but they use it for everything but wheeling things. So they're approached by a chariot that is pulled by two llamas, which is odd, yes. But then behind the llamas, there's a bunch of guys holding up the chariot, <laughs> running behind the llamas to try and make sure that they keep up. I mean, it's a very funny idea, but it makes no practical sense whatsoever. Like, why wouldn't you just ride the llamas, guys? <laughs> or just have someone carrying your carriage? This is like this is like a, a rickshaw... And a horse and carriage combined together with no wheels. It's very strange, but very funny. It's a very funny image. Well, because their whole society is built around suffering, isn't it? Which is why they're just, oh, yeah. they just have a really bad time all the time. It can't possibly get worse for them. That is a, <laughs> that is a good point. And, you know, the, the whole idea about them not having invented the wheel, but having invented sort of every other use for a stone disc with a hole in the middle. People used to say that about the Aztecs. It's not true. But they supposedly had all these little discs that they used for money that had holes drilled in the middle of them. Um, and uh, they also did have a basketball-like game where the baskets were stone discs with holes in them, and people were like, oh, they probably didn't have any, like, wheels. <laughs> but I think they, that maybe they did. Um, I don't think that's actually true. Plus, like, if you've seen, um, what's what's the thing, the Road to El Dorado, this is not <laughs> actually, like, a ball, it's an armadillo when they're <laughs> playing that ball sport. Yeah, right. <laughs> they're that traditional sort of fantasy mashup where someone takes a sort of cultural milieu and makes a fictional version of it without worrying too much about the truth of the thing. It's more about the popular version of it. It's El Dorado with Chichen Itza in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah. 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 Sacrifices, all that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, Rincewind, being Rincewind, is expecting everything to be real bad, but then he's surprised when they arrive and everyone's very receptive and polite and actually giving them tribute. Which is freaking Rincewind out mm-hmm. because this is not how people treat him. <laughs> he he's got, he's like got the it. right senses. He's just waiting for it to reveal. Yeah, everything's going too well. Yeah. Yeah, and I I really liked the name of the the god um, in this uh, because one of my favourite flying reptiles is named after the god that inspired the god that the uh, Tezumin worship Uh, because the real world god of the Aztecs was uh, Quetzalcoatl who was a a feathered serpent and they these guys instead uh, worship... um, Kets overcodal. <laughs> Which or, I didn't get until this morning when I was like rereading and just like, ah. Yeah. It's kind of spoiled a bit by the fact that I'm pretty sure someone told me the correct pronunciation is uh, Ketsa 
coattle. Um, but let's ignore that. <laughs> I don't even know if that's true. Um, but yeah, uh, who's, who's described as the feathered boa, which I thought was such a good gag. <laughs> like, I can't believe I've not thought of it. I'd forgotten this. I'd forgotten all the gags in this mm-hmm. book. They're so good. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. That was great. So they all worship this um, scary god. They've got a huge statue of him. And so Rincewind kind of wanders off while um, Eric is having tribute laid upon him. Yeah. Oh, actually, I should say my favorite thing about the description of him is he's Quetzalcoatl, the feathered boa, god of mass sacrifices. Because <laughs> they're doing mass sacrifices to the god of mass sacrifice. Yeah, it's, uh, I thought that was funny. Yeah. Um, sorry, I just wanted to throw that in there. No, that's very good. Uh, yeah, so... And then, you know, how are they, what, what are they, what are they going to do? How are they going to get out of this business? Well, hang on. Have we established what's going wrong? I'm no, no, everything's going great. Rincewind's just gone on a walk with the parrot mm-hmm. and they, they come across a statue of the god and he's like, oh, well, this is terrifying. Wish I wasn't seeing this. Mm-hmm. And then a voice sort of calls out to him and so it's like, can you help me? And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. We don't really, um, I don't. I think it's great that everyone has the right to their own religion, but I really don't think a giant stone um, terrifying half six different things thing would do very well um, in public. And then Parrot's like, oh, I think it's coming from behind the statue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and it turns out to be Ponce de Quirm, who is a prisoner trapped underneath the temple who gives them some insight into what the real situation is. Mm. Um, based on a real person, the Ponce de Leon, from, uh, who was a 15th century Spanish nobleman who also went off looking for the Fountain of Youth. So. Was he a fancy lion? Uh, <laughs> well, I assume he was. Uh, um, but this Ponce de Quirm is, a, you know, he's a classic conquistador-style uh, explorer um, who is probably not going to treat the locals very well. He's just here to take, find the Fountain of Youth and take it. Although he seems, he seems pretty innocuous. He seems nice enough, doesn't he? See, I was picturing him as like... In, you know, in Aladdin, when Jafar disguises himself as an old prisoner and he's all hobbled in wearing like a terrible oh, right. coat. Because I just, I think I didn't put much time into imagining him. And I was like, oh, well, this is what prisoners from, from these stories look like. But that's, you're absolutely right. I reckon he'd been like a colonial mm. type or a John Smith type. Oh, John Smith yeah. from the cartoon, not John Smith from real life, because they are very different. John Smith from the Pocahontas cartoon, just yes. to, to make that clear. Um, there is, <laughs> in the, yeah, like, there's a few other John Smiths in fiction. Oh, one or two. Oh, just in fiction, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's no real ones. Um, but yeah, he is depicted in the, in the book, um, as, in a sort of, excuse me, in a sort of vaguely conquistador style. Is he in that? He's not in that illustration. He turns up, he turns up later on, but he's wearing, he's wearing a little helmet from memory. Uh, but yeah, he's, uh, he's lost his way on the way to the Fountain of Youth. And also while he's meeting Ponce de Quirm, that's when Rincewind sees the symbols. And this is actually, it's one of the times that we see Rincewind's actual talent, which is not magic, it's languages and cultures. So he remembers things about the local area, but also he can read the language of the Tezaman, although he can't speak it. He's only seen it written down. Um, and whenever they sort of speak out loud, it's just written in like the pictograms that they would use. So you can't really figure out what they're saying. There's a great scene where he's trying to um, communicate with them for the first time and they get the master stonemasons to chisel out their message. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, and there's that joke about how, um, uh, which I felt I felt mixed about this joke, actually, because it says that the only culture where you could beat yourself to death with your own suicide note. And I was like, oh, that's mm. funny. But also it's a bit, oh. It's dark um, funny. It's mm. dark. That's dark. Um, but like quite a, quite a bit darker than um, 
maybe perhaps intended. I don't know. But well, the um, book's kind of dark. Like there's hmm. a lot of asides from Winston, which seems to imply he would much rather be dead. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Like he goes on about how he would like to go back in time and kill his grandfather. That's the only reason he'd like to travel through time and stuff like that. So I'm just kind of like, oh no, Rincewind, buddy. Yeah, he's he's just he's had enough, really, hasn't he? Yeah, and I guess um, he is allowed to confront that idea when he finds out what is in store for him mm. and Eric, mm. which um, is depicted on the walls um, mm. that they are going to be, well, disemboweled. All yeah. the bad things, like everything from the the Monty Python Graves to Robin song, basically, is <laughs> yeah. going to yeah. happen to them. It's all going to happen to them, and it, and it turns out this is because the Tesmen basically have they just have the worst life. They hate where they live. It's a gross swamp. There's just horrible insects and nasty people who live nearby. Uh, their whole lives are terrible, and they blame it all on the creator of the universe. And they think that that's Eric because he has wished to be the master of of all he can survey. And so that's what their legends tell him, that one day the creator of the universe will turn up and he will look like Eric. And so they're going to kill him because that's how they feel about how things have gone for them. And they're like, I, you know, I have a certain amount of sympathy for that mm. point of view. Uh, I would have more sympathy if they hadn't sacrificed thousands of people to their god. Um, but, you know. Meanwhile in hell, um, the Lord as for, for the Astrogal um, is trying to figure out what what has happened because he's had a plan in place for Eric all along, which is that when he finally opens up this portal, he's going to send through a particular guy to create a Faustian pact with him because he wants Eric down there with Mm. them. One of his senior demons, the Lord Vasanego, who is a, um, that name is a parody of uh, one of the Goetic demons, Vasego. Lord of Pudding? Uh, Possibly. (laughs) Possibly. Yeah. Um, But yeah, um, so that didn't happen. Apparently, Vasego was in the bathroom, and so somehow Rincewind got called up instead. Is is as much information as he can glean. And he mm. at this stage still thinks Rincewind is a wizard. No, he doesn't. So at this stage, he thinks that Rincewind is a demon, and he's just trying to figure out what's going on because he's recently taken on the job and he's doing a whole census and everything as well. Mm. But um, while he's doing this, he gets Quetzal over Kodor and says, "Oh well, stuff's going on." up there, not related to Rincewind at all, um, but he wants him to manifest himself. And Quetzal is a bit hesitant, and he, which doesn't quite make sense mm. because oh, it's very the, – the likeness is striking. Yeah, it's striking. Um, and he, he hasn't physically manifested for them before. They've only ever seen him in dreams, but they got a very good look at him in the dreams, so they know exactly what he looks like. They've made this amazing statue, mm. but he doesn't really want to go down there in person. But the Lord of the Demons insists – Mm. And so he does. Yeah. And it turns out there was a reason he didn't want to go, which is... He's teeny tiny. He's teeny tiny. <laughs> he's like a fear demon. Yeah, um, just from like the fear demon from Buffy. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, was the, that was the first thing I thought of. and Because yeah. I haven't seen that gag done anywhere else. I've seen it in this book and I've seen it in... Uh, in that Buffy episode yeah. where they have mm. the whole thing where they're, they're all, everyone's being made to sort of live out their fears and having a terrible time. Uh, and there's an illustration of the demon that's probably responsible in a book. Uh, and they're like, the only way to defeat it is to summon the demon and then we'll fight him. And they're all worried about it. And then they summon him and he's tiny and he gets like squished on. Mm. And it turns out that Giles had not translated the um, caption underneath the demon correctly because mm-hmm. it says actual size, <laughs> which was hilarious. And they, yeah, this is very similar to that. But he doesn't get to say anything. He's just starting to talk to them when... Something happens in the jungle. Something's running out. Something with lots of legs. What could it be? I don't know. It could be the luggage. 
because it is. And it, uh, which accidentally squashes him. And I was like, yeah. and a puma or something as well. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a great line of there's a puma running away from him and it makes the mistake of looking back to see what is being chased by. And that's the last mistake it ever makes. And you're like, oh, it's so sad. And he's also like flanked by some rare jungle fowl, rarer now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the luggage is basically just, I mean, I think this, the, the previous time we saw the luggage in sorcery, I think we were all a little bit weirded out by how it sort of like absorbed a bit of Rincewind's kind of crush on Kanina and then sort of started acting a little bit lovelorn and weird. Um, and now it's really back to its old self, which is just, I'm just going to follow you wherever you go and anything that gets in my way is going to regret it. And th- it, this is like classic luggage behavior. And also kind of mankind's attitude to the world. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it's brutally true. So maybe oh. we are all the luggage. <sighs> well, we've got we've got enough legs uh, as a collective. And I did squish a puma earlier today. Oh no! I don't think I <laughs> the stepped shoe on or any. The cat. Bit of both. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I stepped on any demons though. So hopefully how can be you okay. be sure? Well, I can't be sure if they're yeah. that small, really. Although it's, it's six inches high, that's not tiny. That's like, I mean, it's pretty small for a demon. You wouldn't be that afraid of it. It's smaller than a cat. Like you could be eaten by a house cat, and it's quite horrible. I think one thing that interested me is that the demons are generally, apart from like the high-ranking ones who are all kind of the classic kind of humans with horns kind of um, features, um, that all the the sort of lower-ranking demons are all horrible shapes, and they're they're like the things from the dungeon dimensions. Really, they've got all too many legs and too many mouths, and not enough arms or you know overcompensating maybe mm. yeah. they're trying to like work their way up maybe lose yeah. a couple of limbs as they go along mm. maybe that's it yeah maybe they're being reincarnated <laughs> they start off as like a centipede and they I and i know. like that they um they have the opposite wants of anyone in an office because they're like they're immortally afraid of commendations and things like that <laughs> yes. that was really nice yeah oh yeah. Uh, yeah that's cute i like that that's mm. sort of a reverse thing but um yeah they uh they escape on the luggage um and uh Rincewind clicks his fingers again. After he sends off Ponce de Corum with the parrot oh, yeah, to like, go off to look for the fountain of youth. He's like, We're done with you guys, <laughs> off you go. Yeah. Take this parrot with you. Uh You're definitely the, not gonna appear later with this plot. And the parrot's <laughs> like, I don't want to go. And he's like, Well it's this or I'm gonna feed you, let these guys eat you. <laughs> and he's like, Okay. Mm. Um and the Tesman actually quite happy because they've squashed their god, which means they're like, Oh, Maybe we can start again. Uh, let's see what happens. Except their priests are like, but if they don't worship a god, how are we going to keep the people in order? So they start building a statue of the luggage. Yeah. Yeah. yeah who wouldn't? Oh. Good god to have, I think. Got the right number of legs, yeah. you know. True. Mm. True. And terrifying. Mm-hmm. And smite your enemies. And it's legendary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, god. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm also not sorry. <laughs> no, you, you, you're never sorry, sorry for your for puns. And, <laughs> yeah. and you should never be. Uh, but I have to express my pain so that those of us... In those listeners who also find them painful can feel somebody commiserating with them. Are you bagging me out? No. Oh, God. Uh, God. Are you feeling a bit boxed in? No. No, I just needed to Would get it like off my chest. Stop? Oh. <laughs> and that's a lock. Oh, right. oh my God. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> anyway, uh, yes, he's, he's, they get rid of the parrot. They send it off with Ponsacrem. They snaps his fingers again. And we'll and... stop talking about wooden containers of stuff. Yeah, no more wooden containers yep. because yep. where do they show up? In a wooden horse. <laughs> oh, dang it. Uh, uh, yeah, because they've gone back in time. So Eric wanted to see the most beautiful woman who ever lived. And that is purported to be Eleanor of Sort, which is the Discworld's version of Helen of Troy. 
And so they've gone back in time. And I don't think they necessarily specify how far they've gone back in time. But earlier than pyramids. But it's certainly, yeah, thousands of years. Uh, and yeah, they're back there at the Sortian War, um, mm. the, the Trojan War equivalent. Which they find out when they appear at the end of a horse's butt. It's true. Just like Ace Ventura. Oh, <laughs> but that was, yeah. an, that was an elephant or a rhino? Well, it's a horse's butt in the first Police Academy film. Okay. If you've uh, seen that. I mean, that I don't necessarily recommend that film. Are we talking about all the, the animal butts that we've seen in films? Cause let's, I don't know. Let's should, per, perhaps not. I don't know. Spin-off episode. I feel like that's not a thing we should do. Uh, but yeah, they, they're in the wooden horse and the exit from the wooden horse is built into its butt. Which, which is, makes sense. Yeah, but you didn't like the illustration of this. It, I didn't say I didn't like it. I no. just said it was incorrect because like it has them appearing out of his butt and mm. the horse is kind of looking around shocked, which a wooden horse would not do because a wooden horse has one expression, like me. It's inanimate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, t- I, think, I think we have to take the illustrations as they're not meant to be this is what's happening in the book, I don't think. They're sort of more I'm inspired by the book to draw this scene. Kind of thing. Generally, not how you illustrate a book. No, no. Oh, okay. Well, professional opinion. Like, what would you have done for this illustration? Ah, well, yeah, definitely not having a horse head turning around from an inanimate object for sure. I mean, it is fun. It does have a funny expression on it. Oh, I love it. Oh, sure. But it's just so fluid. To like, it's not. It's consistent with all the other illustrations, I guess, within the book. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, this is what I was saying: is that you know they're inspired by the text rather than really trying to reflect what is happening in the text. Um, Which, and you know, and they are beautiful. They're all in Kirby's style, Um, and so we get you know we get the very the lumpy flesh on all the people and creatures. And and, um, can I say something? Please do. I don't like this style at all. It makes, I'm saying it very quietly because I feel guilty about it. You don't have to feel guilty. I I mean, he's dead, so you don't have to worry about it. That makes me feel worse, I think. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, it creeped me out. Like, this is a reason I Mm -hmm. couldn't read the books for a long time when I was younger, like myself, I'd have them. Uh, The reason I couldn't read the books for a long time because I had them read to me and because I couldn't look at the covers and I'd always take the dust jackets off. Because his style just creeps me out. It gives me the creepy crawlies. Also, all the ladies never wear clothes. Yeah, that is true. And like, I have a book of his other art, and this is this is very much. Although it's interesting because this is the Kirby style. All the Discord illustrations are in his, you know, personal style. But he does do other styles. Like he's he's quite capable of doing very different artistic styles. Interesting. Um, if he wanted to, it always he always talks about how he read the books and really try to put as many interesting things from the story into the cover illustrations as possible. And mm-hmm. so you will see little details that are all over the place. So he does pay attention to the text, but mm-hmm. I think he sort of pays attention to the text looking for inspirations rather than trying to translate exactly what's in the text onto the cover. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, and I guess there's different – I mean, have you ever done that kind of a job where someone's given you text and, and sort of said, can you turn this into an illustration? Like can you make an illustration to go with this text? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And how do you approach that? Um, well, it definitely obviously depends on the job and what they're looking for. Mm. Um, a lot of the time, yeah, you, like you read, if it, for an illustration for a story, um, I usually pick a scene. I pick one scene that I think is particular, like sticks out to me if it, if they're only illustrating one bit from the story. Um, and then try and get just that one scene capture that one moment in the story, as opposed to trying to fit all, all of the feeling of the story. I really like to keep it like, uh, literal, I guess. So mm. what I've read. So yeah, I I much prefer. That's how I prefer. But I, I totally get like uh, 
I, I, I know, what, I get what you're saying, and I agree with you what he's yeah. what he's doing here. I just his style really creeps me out. Like early Mickey Mouse cartoons for me as well. Miffy for me. Yeah, really. Yeah, because oh, no, her her oh. her mouth is is it a mouth? It's crossed. I always thought it's as not a mouth. Chi- it's a nose. Yeah, but as a child, I thought her mouth is sewn shut. Oh, oh, that is creepy. So I was like, why is... Because she doesn't talk. No. So I was like, why is her mouth sewn shut? And when it came on TV, I get really frightened. Oh, I want to watch this all again with this point of view now. Because oh. it looks like it. And I always... I can't stop seeing it like that. It's because well, it's how I... Neither can I now. Yeah. I'm scared. I, I think it's possibly because I was never good at, at drawing when I was a kid. I was always really quite obsessed with the covers of books because I'd be reading them and then any time I remember doing this, whenever I would get up to a scene in the book which was part of the cover, I'd be like reading it and then I'd be looking at the cover and then I'd keep reading the book and then I'd look mm-hmm. at the cover. And um, the Doctor Who novelizations, which was one of, I read loads of them when I was a kid, um, they often, not always, but often had illustrations as well, but they wouldn't have very many. They'd have like maybe somewhere between half a dozen and a dozen. Um, and... I'd always be like looking whenever I got to a bit of the story that was about a character who'd been illustrated in the book, I'd go back and look at the illustration and like to remind myself, what do they look like? Oh, they look like that. And, it, and I, I don't know. It's weird. I don't know that I ever did that. With, I think I'd grown out of that by the time I was reading the Discworld books. Hmm. But we've talked about this before that he's got, his style is kind of weird and in some ways doesn't quite fit Terry's style, but in other ways really does. Like I feel like it's it's kind of, playful and cartoony in some ways that really does sort of reflect the the kind of mood or um or tone of the disc world i feel like it's kind of an emotional interpretation rather than a literal interpretation mm. and mm. i appreciate it for that but i don't find it matches either category for me right and um sometimes it can work in reverse if you take in the cover too much that impacts your emotional interpretation of the text. So um, for me, I started reading them higgledy-piggledy and I also didn't have so many of these covers, so I don't think it impacted me as much. Yeah, that's right, because you started reading around the time Paul Kidby had taken over yeah. doing the illustrations. He's my favourite. I do love his illustrations. And actually, we haven't talked about this yet, but the way that Josh Kirby draws Rincewind never matched my internal idea of what he looked like. Mm. He's way older in the Kirby illustrations mm, mm. than I think he is. And and I think, in fact, in the first few books and by this stage, he's in his 30s. Mm. So he's about, he's about my age. Now, if anyone wants to uh, hire me to play him, <laughs> uh, I'll be very happy. And I always – actually, oddly enough, I think I always imagined him as having a ginger beard. Oh, me too, definitely. But, but it's – and I don't know if that's because in the early books it's described that way. I guess we'll find out when we go back and read those. But um, – yeah, and, and just as, but it's definitely described as a scraggly beard, mm-hmm. and yet he's got this long sort of wizardy beard in here. All grey, um, beautiful grey white hair. Yeah, Dumbledore would be proud. Yeah, definitely. And I don't know. His that hat's too good. Doesn't it's, have wizard written on it. Exactly, does it? Yeah. his hat doesn't have wizard written on it incorrectly, yeah. Yeah. and it's too nice. His clothes are too nice. He's not raggedy enough. But it's a very different style. Like when you look at Paul Kidby's stuff later on, it's very much um, a caricature, but it's sort of. I don't, I'm not sure what the right term for it, George, is. Maybe you can help me out. But it's kind of like he does sort of like uh, not – it's sort of much more realistic than um, Kirby but still a caricature. Oh, definitely. I yeah. think, um, yeah, like if you look at the faces that he creates, they're still very like – they just push that little bit 
too far. Yeah. So it's more, it is realistic, but it's just pushed that little bit more. Like the eyes often like goggle out quite a bit mm. in his characters, which I really like. And they're like often, yeah, character, like caricatured um, people. Or caricatured in <laughs> some of the watch ones. <laughs> it's true. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, um, but, uh, and I think yeah. he's got more urban sort of vibes, which I think really work, particularly with the watch books, really mm. well. Whereas this is heavily fantasy inspired um, illustration sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, grand vistas of the whole place. And and I think it's only relatively recently that um, Kidby's done those sort of more grand mm. illustrations as he's done things like the, you know, the very recent book, The Discworld Imaginarium, mm. which I would love to read. I haven't got my hands on a copy, but it looks beautiful. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very different style. But I do I do enjoy these pictures, whether or not they exactly match the the art. And I I, I do love the expression on this horse's face as yeah. these people climbing out of this giant portal built into its butt. Yep. Um, or ass, as we would say in Australia. We keep saying butt. I, I you know I say butt because I work with kids all the time, and butt is the word you can say that's a little bit naughty, but not too rude to say around kids. That's what I say. Um, yeah. But you probably can't say ass in front of smaller kids, so I don't say ass. See, I can't say ass at all because I seem to either fall on going ass or or like sounding too posh. I'm not sure why. It's like if Downton Abbey had a script that included the word ass. That's how I'd say it. Right. And well, it just, Ad- Adelaide? Yeah. Uh, I think Where it's we have the good accent. Ass. Yeah, ass. Yeah, ass. And ass. But I can't, I can't say a- ass. I find that really hard. It's like it's too harsh for my vocal cords. It's like it's really unpleasant to say. Doing archery with words. Like you're just yeah. firing off this terrible word that doesn't sound right <laughs> with your voice. But ass sounds too nice for what it is. Yeah, and then you try and say kick ass. And there's like, no, that doesn't. No, it should be kick. Get, no, it doesn't. And when just, the movie was out, I was just like, oh, you the, the one that the superhero, <laughs> the kick one. Yeah, kick kick ass or kick ass. See, that so was you, fine. Yeah, you. I say, I say kick ass. Yeah, but I, but I find that weird too because, like, when I'm when, if someone's being a real jerk, I would say, "Oh, you're an asshole," and that's weird because people expect you to pronounce that the American way and say asshole. But I I don't mm. want to say that. See, I get around that by calling them a douche canoe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so rinse wind and Erica climbing out of the horse's douche canoe, and which is also kind of could be accurate. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, but I love the way that this pans out because they, they come out of the horse and the the Sortian army are surrounding them and they're like, we've been waiting for someone to come out of this horse. You thought we didn't, wouldn't figure it out. Yeah, you bunch of jerks. But when they were inside the horse, there's nobody else inside. It's just the two of them. And it turns out that not only were the Sortians expecting or had figured out, that of course, you've got people hidden inside this horse. So we brought it inside and now we're waiting for you to come out. But... The um the Ephebians, who are the Greeks of the Discworld, um, had figured out that they would know that. And so they just put the horse there and left it there as a distraction while they went in round the back gate. Um, Everyone well, going around the back. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But I love the, I love the way that works out. And, and eventually um, they do get in through the back gate into um, sort so that they can burn the place down. So they can sort some things out. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they can get this whole war sorted, and um, but they're led in accidentally by Rincewind and Eric, who are looking for a way out because they managed to slip away from the guards, who are distracted by the luggage, which has turned up at the front gates and is decimating the um, Sortian troops. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it's I it just yeah, I really enjoyed this, you know, and I I read a lot of Greek mythology when I was a kid, and oddly enough, not that much about the Trojan War. I was much more interested in um, the Odyssey and. Um, uh, Odysseus's voyage home, but uh, there was I, I knew this well enough that even when I was reading it the first time, I was like, "Oh, this is great!" 
Um, and I know we had a, a comment from at least one listener who was like, oh, I'm hoping when I read this again, it'll make more sense to me now that I know who <laughs> Faust is and I know a bit about the Trojan War. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's great. I, I really enjoyed that. And it's, and it, you know, we, we did Pyramids a couple of episodes ago and it's even in the future, nobody really remembers how this war goes. And it's nice to see. There's a, lo- there's a lot of overlap in these early Discworld books. There's a lot of jokes that come up in different ways again and again. There's a lot of connections between places and characters and mm. things that happen. And this is one of the bigger ones, which I enjoyed. And I also enjoyed um, hearing the phrase, pull the other one, it has got bells on again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that is one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Um, but yeah, so they let in the Phoebians. I get them mixed up, just like I get the real ones mixed up. And I forget which side had... Eleanor or Helen originally or who she was supposed to marry but I mean I guess so did she because (laughs) yeah yeah well it is confusing because it's you know it's the Trojan War and the Trojan horse and the Trojan horse would seem to indicate that it belonged to the Trojans and they built it but in actual fact it was built by the Greeks to get into the city of Troy so yeah it is a little bit confusing but if you remember you know the whole beware of Greeks bearing gifts thing that's that's why it's the, mm. the Greeks built the horse. Yeah. Yeah, I got to I got to confess I'm not really across the classics. I didn't learn it at school, so it's kind of my Achilles heel. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think come on, we're all aboard for that one. That's yeah. that's that's that was not very a, good. That's not a pun, that's a classical illusion. Oh, <laughs> that was great. Uh, Thank you for coming on this odyssey with me. <laughs> uh, but the, when they let in the um Phoebians, eventually they do meet their commander, and their commander is a Oddly familiar looking kind of guy. Uh, his name is uh, Laviolus. Is yeah. that how we're going to say it? I was saying it as Laviolus. Yeah, it seems, even though it's spelt sort of Lava Iolus. Um, Laviolus? Laviolus. It could be Laviolus, actually. So, <laughs> so, so they meet Legolas and. <laughs> they do. Um, but they figure out that he must be a distant ancestor of Rincewinds because Lavalius, or however we're going to pronounce it, translates as Rincer of Winds. Which I thought was quite nice because I never really thought about Rincewind's name. I just thought it was a weird sounding name and it sounded kind of vaguely like a wizard name. Hmm. I never really thought that it meant anything. Hmm. And also it's his first name uh, hmm. and his only name, in fact. So, like Prince hmm. or Cher. Yeah. yeah. But does Prince have an ancestor named Prince? <laughs> like that seems weird. No, it'd be like a version of Prince. Like yeah. oh. son of king. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Like Thane's son or something, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, but weird. Uh, Laird was... boy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but yeah, Laviolus is a cunning guy who, he's the one who came out the back door thing, the horse thing. He doesn't like all the military stuff because he kind of seems like the guy who's been forced to hang out with the football team when he really doesn't like the football team. Yeah. This was my favorite part of the book, just enjoying him chatting and like being smart mm. and cool. It kind of reminded me of how I feel when I listen to Vimes. Yes. When he's discussing things and figuring mm. stuff out. It felt like an early Vimes sort of vibe. Because he's very practical. Mm, you know? Practical, yes. And this is only one book after Vimes is introduced. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that this is a similar kind of character. So he um, has used a strategy where they have gotten into civilian clothes, gone to a bar, and basically gotten to know a janitor who tells him about the secret entrance to the tower. So mm. they are now all on their way to the tower. Um, I think three like soldiers and then... The luggage, Eric and Rintwind, is it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So they're on their way up to there. And as they burst through the door, um, Laviolus has his speech all worked out. It's all very impressive. Unfortunately, however, um, it falls on tiny ears, um, toddler ears, in mm-hmm. fact. How do we feel about the way that Eleanor is described? Because 
I feel like this is one of the parts of the book where I was like, look, I see what the joke is, which is that you wanted to see the most beautiful woman who ever lived, and we're going to show her to you 20 years after she was the most beautiful woman in the world. And, I, and I'm and i like, oh, but really, is that cool? I don't know. I mean, this is how she's described in the book. Do you want to read it, Liz? There was a woman there, plump, good-looking in a slightly faded way, wearing a black dress and the beginnings of a moustache. A number of children of varying sizes were trying to hide behind her. Rintwin counted at least seven of them. Yeah. Mm. Um, when Rintwin points out that that's Eleanor of sort, Eric's like, no, don't be silly. She looks like my mum. Eleanor was much younger and was all... His voice gave out and he made several wavy motions with his hand, indicative of the shape of a woman who would probably be unable to keep her balance. <laughs> and you're like, mm, okay, I see what's going on here. It's a good gag but i mean then there's the way she's drawn in the book yeah yeah, um, yeah we're, i feel we're being very critical but you know we've got to be true to ourselves and i think um as much as i do enjoy the illustrations and i enjoyed reading the book this one left me a bit she out has of more clothes. yeah she does have more clothes <laughs> but not not many more no and it doesn't really matter since she's literally covered in babies she is covered in babies yeah yeah, yeah. or sitting on a baby as well having a baby there's a lot going on yeah good she's become very comfortable in sorts while the war has been going on and she just wants to stay there she's had lots of babies because she came here you know to be with her lover and get married and have kids and she has because the war famously you know went on for a long time both the disc world version and the real world version um so yeah who knows who knows what's going on so that's i don't know how do we feel about this i have two kind of queries about it so is she was she 20 years ago the most beautiful woman who's ever lived or does she just have the reputation of being the most beautiful woman Mm. who's ever lived because there's kind of both are offered Mm. in there because later they say oh well it's the face that launched a thousand ships oh that's a metaphor they like do it up for history that kind of thing Mm. so they're implying that she was just fairly because they say the whole thing about was quite good looking in good light so Mm. which suggests Mm. that she's always been attractive but not like the stunning beauty of legend so if that's the case then even this is not really a fulfillment of eric's wish because he Mm. asked to quite literally meet the most beautiful woman who's ever lived yeah so does he specify though yeah does he say that it should be like later on i think he does mention eleanor of sort before Rincewind does. Yeah, because and when they're at the tro- when they realize where they are, he's like, Oh, yeah. I'm gonna meet her. Yeah. 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 So he had someone in mind. So it's almost like it's not just it's not just that they're perverting the wording that he's used for his wishes, but they're also they they know what he thinks he wants. They're perverting they're, his perversions. Yeah. So they they're giving him what he asked for, not what he really wants. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, I agree. I, I think there's that idea that, you know, we fought this massive war over her, so she must be the greatest, most beautiful person who ever lived. Um, and whether or not that's really the case and whether it was just an excuse to start a war, who knows? And indeed, it really doesn't seem like um, Laviolus knows either. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it, was, it was kind of one of those moments where it's like it feels a bit clunkier now maybe than it was when it was written. Like, I think it's a good joke, like in and of mm. itself. But, like, yeah, it is a bit unkind and is unkinder still in the picture. Mm. Yeah, but not so kind in the book that it shouldn't have been in there. I think it is a good twist mm. on yeah. on yeah, yeah. The, I agree, and, and it's the kind of joke that you see in the older Discworld books and the older Pratchett books, and you don't, you can't really imagine him have re- written that like you know ten 
15 years later. Because it's not like herp to derp, she's ugly. It's like... <laughs> yeah, it's not that. It's, thank goodness. It's just like, oh, she she's a normal person. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is fine. Yeah. It's good yeah. even. But yeah. It's good to be a normal person. Um, but they persuade her to leave, um, which she does before the... Um, the no, they don't persuade her to leave. They accidentally they set fire to the tower as they're, as they're trying to go and the luggage rescues everyone. That's right. Yeah, they do. Uh, and they, they get back to the boats um, as the towers are toppling in sort. Not the topless towers that Eric was hoping for. No, no. no. Yeah. Uh, but, well, they certainly don't have tops anymore because yeah. they've been destroyed. But yeah, that's which is the gag. But it's fun. And there's that moment where Leviolus is like, so you're from the future. And I, I quite liked how matter-of-fact he was. They just saw, I actually just watched an episode of uh, the TV show Stargate SG1 where they accidentally travel back in time 40 years to uh, 1969 or 30 years. What season was this? Uh, season two. It's near the end of season huh. two. And they figure it out almost immediately. And when they tell someone that's what happened because they've got a little bit of evidence, he believes them. And I was like, what a pleasant surprise for a time travel story where people don't go, don't be ridiculous. You can't be traveled through time. And it was the same in this book with uh, Laviolus, who's like, oh, you're from the future. I've got an ancestor. I guess that's all right. Does that mean I make it home? And Rincewind's like, um, yeah, you make it home. <laughs> like, he's like, what, what will be gained from telling you that you're going to have a terrible time? Because, Nothing. Um, um, as we, we know, he's Odysseus, essentially, and he's yes. going to have a whole bunch of sirens and cyclopses and and Poseidon getting real angry at him and turning yeah. the tides. It's going to take him 10 years to get home, which is about like the time Australia Post takes to deliver a letter from <laughs> one suburb to another. Oh, so rude, that Australia Post. Um, yeah, well, like they throw my mail at my house, not not in the letterbox. What? Now, do you feel, therefore, that Australia Post might be being run by someone cut from the same cloth as Agstfagal? Do you think it's gotten over overly bureaucratic and... Officious. Yeah, Aspergill in his final form. Um, it's definitely not Moist von Lipwig. <laughs> no, no, that's true. Yeah, that, that's that, a shame. That is yeah. a shame. Um, all, yeah. So all post offices should be run by con men. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Good. I think we've solved Excellent. Australia Post problem. Excellent. So yeah, um, right. For, if you're a con man, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they get out of the the business post haste. Um, <laughs> they do. Um, Sorry. But then um, when Rincewing clicks his fingers again. They go somewhere else and they do not know where they are. Or when they are. Mm. They just can't figure it out. And in fact, everything seems weird. It seems like there's not really sounds. There's not really feelings. There's not really even time where they are. And this disturbs Astrogal no end because he should be able to find them throughout all of space and time because demons exist outside the normal flow of space and time. In fact, there's a great, uh, there's a great bit in the book where they're describing as they leave uh, sort, um, that the demon law is wondering, what did happen to Laviolus? And it says, you know, well, you'd think demons would know because they can see everything, but it says uh, they should know everything that is going to happen because, in a sense, it already has. But the reason they don't is that reality is a big place with lots of interesting things going on, and keeping track of all of them is like trying to use a very big video recorder with no freeze button or tape counter. And I like that joke because it's very funny, but also... If people, listeners under a certain age will not know what the hell he's talking about. Whereas we used to have to record um, shows that we weren't at home to watch as they were being broadcast on television on a video recorder. Um, and these didn't even used to be, you know, digital in the proper sense. I remember the first one we had was shaped like a, a big 
radio. So it was a big sort of square with a, with a handle on the top so you could carry it around to plug it into different TVs. Uh, it, it did have a remote control, but the remote control had a cable. It was not a, uh, a, a infrared remote control. And you do it. You have a tape counter so that you, um, would be able to write down where on the tape it was. And it was just a set of numbers that would go up like on an old school audio cassette recorder and trying to find stuff on them was terrible. Anyway, that's a, that's a note from the, uh, hi, I'm Ben and I'm about 40 years old <laughs> uh, department. Yeah. Well, we had a VHS tape rewinder, like a special machine specifically to rewind tapes. Oh, was that so you only, could be rewinding yeah. a tape in the tape rewinder while, while you watching, watching a tape? Else? <gasps> Getting ready to eat just like nonstop videos. Yeah. And I used to be the good person who'd always rewind the tapes before returning them to the video store. That's oh, work. good. Yeah. I approve. Yeah. Rather than being the person who's like, oh, you can borrow this and have to rewind it before you watch it. It's terrible. Cool. It reminds me of that uh, film. Rewind please, you of that? Please. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, that film, Be Kind, Rewind. Um, I couldn't get through. It's the only film I've never been able to sit through. Clearly you've not seen Cosmopolis. No. Which is the correct decision. Okay. Uh, no, yeah. I haven't seen it either. But I just, I just like, uh, perhaps it's just that I really like Moss Def. I really don't like Jack Black. That's... Oh. Sorry. Just wait till you see how I answer one of the later questions. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. This, this, could get, this could get tricky. But anyway, yeah, the Demon Lord can't figure out where they are and he's getting a bit agitated about this. Um, so he decides he's going to go and look for them in one of the only two places they could possibly be where he wouldn't be able to see them. Um, but as it turns out, they're not in that one. They're in the other one. They're at the, the beginning of time. The they're before of the beginning of time. Yeah, before the beginning of time. Um and there's nobody there. Well, they think there's nobody there, but actually there is someone there. It's the creator of the Discworld. Not, not the creator. But not the creator. He's just a, a creator. creator. Yeah. This had, for me, major slutty Bart Fast, yeah. Magrathea, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy yep. vibes. Yep. And I just love the way that this, this, this little rat-faced man, as he's described in the text, he's making the world, like he's doing the waving of his fingers and creating trees and land and the firmament and all that sort of business. But it, it, he's just, he's a, he's a contractor. Mm. He's a, you know, he's like a bricky or a, a sparky. He's like, no, oh, I'm doing, it's more of my job's worth. Uh, I'm going to do it. He's doing a really good job because he's not like those other people. They're like the subcontractors who just like, yeah. they just don't even add the fingles. Like it's just, yeah. <laughs> the fingles. Oh yeah. Wow. That was, I love the fingles. We should talk about the fingles. Yeah. Cause it explains so much <laughs> about our world. <laughs> Yeah, so the fingers is a bit. If you if you didn't read the book, and we we never, we try. We, I mean, the reason we go through the book in plot order is we don't want to assume that you have read it <laughs> when you're listening. But most of you probably have. But the the fingers are the things that's missing. Do you want to read that bit of the book, Liz? So, <clears throat> I'd done a whole world once and completely left out the fingers. Not one of the buggers couldn't get them at the time. Told myself I could nip back when they're in stock. Completely forgot. Imagine that. No one spotted it, and of course, because obviously they just evolved there and didn't know that there ought to be fingers. But it was definitely causing them deep, you know, psychological problems. Deep down inside, they could tell there was something missing, sort of thing. So, like, we're the world without <laughs> fingers, and that's why we have that sort of. There has to be something more because something's missing in its fingers. What? What do we? Yeah. What do we think fingers could be? What could they be? Well, we can't comprehend them, surely. Mm, yes. But, but it, I mean, we can imagine things that don't exist, though. Is it like a certainty of purpose? Oh. Ooh. Yeah. Maybe it's you know what I maybe it's like demons in the in the his dark materials books like where your your soul exists outside your body and takes on an animal form so you can kind of talk to it maybe that's fingers because I, I just I, but you know maybe that's just me because I think that would be awesome maybe it's like a coat that fits really well and everyone has one <laughs> the feeling that you get when you wear yeah. that coat oh I feel like it's a feeling for yeah. me it's like an intangible 
Fingal. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Listeners, if you think you know what a fingle is, we'd love to hear what your ideas are. Please let us know. Hmm. Um, you can use the uh, the hashtag Pratchat7 to talk about this episode. Um, or indeed use the hashtag Fingles. Um, F-I-N-G-L-E-S. <laughs> we'll see what happens. That sounds like a good song. F-I-N-G-L-E-S. I don't know. <laughs> no, that was good. I'll pay that. I've got a question, though. Is Sometimes you're ordering things, right, and you have to write them down quickly when you're doing a job, and Fingles is just one of the many things you have to order while you're making a world, mm. right? Mm. So when they're making, like, does this world also not have proper Fingles? Because you mean the they've got, world? Yeah, because they've got Fingles. That's true. <laughs> is that just like a typo, and they got Fingles instead of Fingles? No, well. Because the, the psychology mm. of these people seems to be quite similar to what is around us, like the whole thing's a satire. So maybe Discord doesn't have fingles either. Well, he doesn't say whether it's supposed to have them. Like he's, he, the way he talks about it is not clear whether every world should have fingles or if he just left them out of a world that should have had them. Mm. Yeah, hard to know. Hard to know. CD but... fingles? <laughs> In case you don't want the whole album? It's good. Val, would you have all the finger ladies? <laughs> Okay, let's move on before this gets uh, any worse. Um, We're just making our own fingles. We don't have any. I know, I know, I understand. Right. I, I feel the loss as well. Uh, but yeah, you fingle the loss. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I do, I do. I wish I, if I had the fingles, I would uh, be able to explain it more. Well, at Christmas we can sing finger bells. It's fine. Uh, but the the, uh, the other thing that I really like about the creator of the universe, though, is that. He's got one of those things that Terry puts into some of the minor characters. He just gives them a little bit of a mannerism that just makes them feel real. Mm. Kind of like how Solomon Cohen in uh, Dodger has that little mmm that he always does in his speech. The creator of the universe, he has that, you know, sort of thing uh, that he says at the end of every sentence. And you just, just imagine him sort of being slightly absent-minded saying that. I also love the bit where he makes Rincewind a sandwich. Where he said, oh, I brought mm. a sandwich. Are you hungry? He's like, yeah. And he's going to take the sandwich out of the bag. He says, well, what kind is it? He's like, um, I don't know, what do you got? He says, no, you have to say what it is. He goes, uh, you got, I don't know, egg and cress? And he goes, let there be egg and cress sort of thing. (laughs) And he pulls it out of the bag. Oh, I love it. But no mayonnaise. Yeah. Yeah, that is a bit, who makes an egg? I mean, that's like leaving out the fingles, seriously. Yeah. Like, who makes makes an egg and lettuce sandwich without? Or Or at least butter. You need... Something like that. I think it had butter on it, surely. Like, who makes one like that? But then what does an egg and cress sandwich make? All of life on Discord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So does that mean Rincewind is a co like a subcontractor creator because he's the one that came up with the sandwich thing and that created all life? I guess he could argue for that on his tax form. Yeah. 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 It's interesting that life on the Discworld is evolved, uh, even though it's a heavily magical place <laughs> and they could have just had them all created and it would have made sense. But I like that it has that backstory and history. Because, yeah, yeah um, Rincewind and Eric find themselves standing on a beach and they have figured out that this is his third wish, to live forever, forever, which means he has to start at the very beginning and just be alive for all of it. And they're kind of going, oh, no, that's quite a long time. Yeah, there'll be a long time before there's people. It's mm. going to be very boring. And Rin- and he's like, you'll stay with me, right, Rincewind? And Rincewind's like, I don't want to stay here. <laughs> this is your stupid wish. <laughs> Uh, but then they feel like they're stuck. And he's like, oh, it's quite nice, though. You know, there's, there's nobody chasing us. There's nothing that can eat us or kill us. Uh, but then he also sort of looks around and is a bit like, oh, um, yeah, it's not really like Ankh Morpork, though, is it? There's mm. that lovely bit where he realizes he's such a child of the city. He does not want to live forever mm. in clean skies and lovely, pure <laughs> air. Like, it's just weird for him. So, yeah, he's like, no, we've got to go back. We've got to go back. And he starts to get a bit <laughs> panicky about it. Um, and that's when... 
the only bit of hacking in the book happens. After um, he throws his egg and crest sandwich into the water oh, yes, and it true. starts to evolve life. That's right, yeah, yeah. Just like Prometheus. Just, oh, God. Yeah, just like... Oh, it makes more sense than Prometheus, I'll say that. Well, the guy fell in the water and then life, you know. <laughs> Look, I really- I, I, let's not turn this into the podcast about things that we hate because I really hated that film. Um, <laughs> well, can I say something I liked about this bit of the book? Please do. Uh, I really loved the description of the tides and like how they were very tentatively, like, yeah, and they themselves were evolving into being... Um, so here's, here's a bit. Uh, the waves rolled peacefully up the beach, not very strongly at the moment because they were still feeling their way. The first high tide was coming in cautiously. There was no tide line, no streaky line of old seaweed and shells to give it some idea of what was expected of it. That's really nice. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. like this little peaceful little thing. And then, of course, adventure. And yeah, well, running. that makes sense because the, the world is so peaceful at mm. the time. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Um, so they're so they're really really bored on this beach. Mm-hmm. So they do the first bit of hacking, like you're saying. Can you explain what the hacking the is. Only bit of ha- well, look, it's not like it makes any sense. Um, but uh, but essentially, Rinsman's like, wait, you did a summoning circle to summon me from somewhere else. Can you do a summoning circle to get us out of here and like reverse summon us to somewhere? And um, there's. It, there's sort of a, a little bit of a, a joke explanation of how it works um, where they're talking about it. Um, and he thinks that they're going to go back to Ankh-Morpork, Pork, but that's not where they end up. They end up instead at the outside the portal to um, hell. Um, and Eric sort of complains that he's being told it's not quite what Rincewind asked for in, in a way that I have to say as someone who's worked in IT support in his life, um, can, I can definitely recognize where someone's like, hey, can you fix this thing? And we're like, well, I fixed it. And they're like, but it doesn't do this thing. I'm like, well, you, look, I, do you know how hard it was to get it to even do this? He says, are oh, you not supposed to be able to make magic circles run in reverse? In theory, it means you stay in the circle and reality moves around you. I think I did very well. And then he starts getting all nerdy. And, and the phrase is his voice suddenly vibrating with enthusiasm. He says, you see, if you rewrite the source codex, this is a difficult bit. You root it through a high level, and that's as far as he gets. Like, <laughs> the only joke is saying source codex instead of source code. Um, and I, I kind of, you know, I was a bit disappointed. I was like, I know Terry Pratchett loved his tech stuff, and I was hoping he would put some more computer programming jokes in there. But that's that's pretty much what we get. We get source codex, uh, and then we get a routing joke, and we get the MS-DOS manual. And, uh, I, yeah, I was hoping for more. And, and particularly because he's described as a hacker on the back of the book, I really thought there'd be more hacking in it. And there, there wasn't. It was a shame. But I did like that joke. It was, it was funny. Well, there was almost some hacking in the Tezuman bit. Oh, yeah. yeah. They almost get hacked into with Obsidian, but, you know, oh, yeah. luggage got in the way. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But um, so suddenly they're in a place with a very forbidding door, mm. but a pretty contrasting sign above it. A faux cheerful sign. Lots of exclamation marks. Uh, Yeah, which is a a running theme in all Terry Pratchett books. Whenever you see something written with multiple exclamation marks, someone always comments on how this is the sign of a diseased mind. Yeah, it's a shame that I pretty much end all sentences with exclamation points. One or two. 
Only one. So yeah. yeah. See, that's yeah. fine. That's fine. I mean, I've had to train myself to not put an exclamation mark at the end of every sentence. You've got to only do a couple of them or you just, it, they become meaningless. I always think of Elaine from Seinfeld in that one episode when her editor's like, you can't end every sentence with an exclamation point. So I go back and always edit and make sure like at least <laughs> yeah. sentences that are next to each other don't end with the same type of punctuation. Yeah. yeah I'm, was, I'm in the same boat. I was a great teenager um, when I was on MSN and people would write something, put two exclamation marks. I'd always respond, rabbits, because it looks like one. <laughs> so like... <laughs> yeah, okay. Which is yeah. probably more annoying than anything else, but they all stopped doing it eventually. <laughs> so you're welcome. Yeah. Editing even then. Yeah. Editing the joy out of conversation. <laughs> oh, that's okay. It's important. Well, look, actually, there's a, there's a bit that I, I want to mention before we go on, which is that while they're you know, doing the reverse summoning circle and getting back to where they hope is ain't more pork but ending up at the portal to hell, Astvigal, meanwhile, has gone to the other end of time, the end of everything, to find out if that's where Rincewind and Eric are. They're not there, but he does meet Death, who, of course, is there because everything has just died and starts to begin again, um, which he Death does not seem to have been expecting. <laughs> um, but uh, then he flies back um, to try and find them. And I love the description of him as he's flying back through the space-time continuum. Um, and I'll probably read that as one of my favorite passages at the end, so I won't do it now. But, um, yeah, where he unfurls his wings and they're made of, like, magnetism and folded space. And I was like, oh, yeah, oh, this is cool. And I was just imagining him um, erupting out of his, like, rather sort of genteel form. It was so good. Mm. Yeah, I love that description. And there's no there's no image of that in the in the book, but fair enough. I mean, how do you draw wings made of magnetism and folded space? That's that's a tall order for any artist, I feel. They're at the portal to hell. They don't realise that's what it is at first until they open the door and there's a demon there. Urgleflogger. Which is such a good name. <laughs> what a good name for a demon. Uh, but he's got a cheerful little and they know it's his name because he's got a cheerful little name badge and he has to do a little rehearsed script because Astvigal has made all the demons do all of the horrendous customer service nonsense that anyone who's worked in customer service or retail has had to endure at some point. Yeah, I'm surprised there isn't a table where everyone's just refolding cardigans. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a garment retail. Uh, yeah, wow. It's a classic trope. You think hell is like being poked with pokers, but actually it's bureaucracy and it's like petty middle management nonsense. Because as they point out, when you're in hell, you're dead. You haven't got a corporeal body and you don't really have to feel pain unless you choose to, which everyone chooses not to. So being prodded with things is kind of just going through the motions. And, hmm. the, and the demons don't really care. Like They're just like, well, we're traditionalists. This is what we're supposed to do. So this is what we'll keep doing. It's their I, own kind of bureaucracy. I, I hmm. thought that was really interesting because this is like, in the context of the other Discworld books, this version of Hell, which is very much modelled after the Divine Comedy style pit of fire with different circles and demons torturing damned souls business, is very much at odds with what we know of the afterlife from all the other Discworld books. Like, it's usually you go to a personalized mm. hell if you believe that that's where you should go. Um, and there is that, you know, there's that footnote in this book where it's like people only go to hell if that's what they believe on the Discworld, which is why you should shoot missionaries on site, which seems, I mean, that's harsh, but I, I see where they're going with that. <laughs> but it's slightly weird that it's presented as this sort of ultimate and impressive and powerful place when it must be only one of countless numbers of different hells, depending on what people believe on the Discworld. 
And yet the demons here are presented as being as powerful as, as the gods. Because he has that line about gods and demons being the difference between them being the same as being between terrorists and freedom fighters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole thing about Quetzal Overcoat or um, is being worshipped as a god, but he's actually a demon. So, like, again, mm-hmm. like the yeah. distinction is very in the wording. But they don't seem to care that much about belief. Like, they don't seem to be... I mean, you know, Quetzal Overcoatl is is fostering belief in himself. But... Uh, and they want people to believe in hell because that way they end up there. But other than that, there's they don't really talk about what do they do to foster um, belief in them. And Asphigal's a bit mad about how hell's gotten a bad reputation because someone got out. So like it's like he doesn't want anyone to really know what it's like, yeah, or what it was like because he's trying to change it into this smooth ship full of post-it notes and filing cabinets and name tags. Yeah, mm. and, but also I found it interesting that underneath that, he's the only demon who cares that they're not actually torturing anyone. He's like, that's mm. our whole job and we're not doing it. <laughs> like, we're just doing this nonsense. We, we should actually be torturing people and making them miserable. Let's make that happen. And unfortunately what's happened because he's invented this, like, perfect um, boredom <laughs> uh, is that he's not only torturing the souls – who are trapped there, he's also torturing the demons because yep. it's just as boring and awful for them. Mm. My favourite is the demon who has like people chained to a couch and is showing them paintings of his holiday yeah. to the fifth circle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I really like the one who's just reading the guy strapped to the rock who he normally would have his like uh, stomach yeah. eaten out. But, uh, oh, no, oh, it's, it's Sisyphus. It's, Sisyphus. It? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's the Sisyphus equivalent. Who's He's supposed to be pushing the rock up the hill, but instead he's just being read the like occupational health and safety <laughs> regulations before he's allowed to do it. And he's not oh. even reading the actual regulations. He's reading like the side notes and stuff. Oh, yeah, uh. I thought that was that was inspired. It's yeah. very funny. And yep. I, I mean, as much as I said this is a trope that's been done, um, I think this is probably one of my absolute favourite iterations of it. That's so good. Mm. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning, this This book was published in uh, 1990, I think it was, um, which is the same year as Good Omens. Mm. And so there's a lot of similar ideas because Crowley mm. has these ideas about he's going to torture people not by, you know, like damning a particular soul but by making everybody's lives more miserable by changing the shape of a motorway so that they mm. get really irritated. And it also coincidentally is the sigil to summon some sort of evil. But it's like, yeah, that's that same idea that bureaucracy can cause much more discomfort and annoyance and evil than any demon with a hot poker. Mm. Hell is other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are plenty of other people in hell because Rincewind and Eric managed to talk their way past Urgelflogger into the main part of hell um, where they meet a couple of old friends, hmm. oddly enough, as they run away and hide from the demons who are now searching for them. And it's Ponce de Quorum and, and what's name? Laviolus. <laughs> oh, and, what's name? And, and what's name? Yeah. And what's name. Oh, yeah, and what's name. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, But they're, <laughs> they're all there, uh, rather surprisingly. All on the treadmill of death. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did like the joke about what happened to Ponce de Quorum, though, which is like, I did, so I guess you didn't find the Fountain of Youth. He's like, no, I did. I just... <laughs> didn't think of to boil the water before I drank it. <laughs> like that is that was that was genuinely funny. I like that. And they know that there's there's one other exit from hell. They spot it, um, but they're they're hiding on a treadmill and it's like one of the punishments in hell is to run on this treadmill that never goes every, anywhere. Um, and they're not quite sure how they're gonna make it all the way across the burning pits of hell to the other exit to escape um when there's a noise because the luggage has arrived. Um, and indeed, someone lets the luggage in through the door um, because by this stage, 
uh, Astrogal has ordered all of the demons, including all the high level ones, to go and find these interlopers. And, you know, this is going to look really bad for us that people have come into hell and they're not supposed to be here. Um, and, um, he's particularly annoyed with the demon Vasanego, who is supposed to be the one summoned by Eric. And he's like, well, well, are you sure you want to? And he's like, he's like, yes, uh, look for them and also take Ogle Flogger and like dis- dismantle him. And they're like, you sure? Like, that'll leave the door to hell unattended. He's like, did I stutter? You know, basically, <laughs> go and do what I said. And Vasnego is like, yeah. And that's the first hint you get that, oh, he's up to something. His machinations other than the treadmill. Yeah. Um, so someone lets the luggage in. The luggage runs across hell and finds Rincewind, jumps onto the treadmill and starts running so hard that the giant wheel that forms the treadmill breaks off its mount and rolls right across hell and... It looks like they're going to escape, uh, but this, the wheel smashes near the exit from hell. Uh, but Astrogal has noticed this, of course, uh, and apprehends Rincewind and Eric and is just about to do something horrible to them in front of all the demons because he wants everyone to see that he's like taken a hand and has stopped this nonsense when suddenly everyone breaks out into applause. Because the demons took on his advice to learn from humans and have learned about managing people out. Yes, he's going to get kicked upstairs. Yeah, he's been promoted to a place he can't do any harm. And it turns out the whole thing was orchestrated by Vasanego in order to get Astrogal out of the way and presumably for him to take over as the new Prince of Hell. Mm. He was supposed to be summoned by Eric and he's just been watching. He's the one who orchestrated Rincewind being summoned instead out of the dungeon dimensions and also um, has been providing the magical power for all of the things that have happened. It's, Rincewind hasn't had anything to do with it. It's all been Vasanego's plan all along. Uh, and it was just to distract Astrogal until this moment. Make him president of hell where mm. he has to like be across everything. He has to do the filing cabinets. He has, he's allowed to have sticky notes. It sounds like he's going to start like a, like a, what's, what's the thing where all the people meet and nothing happens? Oh, uh, a meeting. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> no, but like more than that, there's regular meetings. A oh, committee. Uh, yeah. Oh, a committee. Yeah. Oh, no. And he's yeah. going to have like underlings that will do his work for him. Yep. And, yeah. Yeah. The whole team. Um, so he goes into his new office, which is huge, uh, and Sounds vanishes a lot like out of hell. The Oval Office, in descriptions to me, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> possibly it's got a lot more potted plants in it. Yeah. Then there's this sort of nice little everyone gets a happy ending ending, where the Tesmen are happy because even though they they build this statue to the luggage and they worship it, it never comes back, and so eventually they turn to atheism and then they just kill lots of people without needing to pray to a god mm. so. and get up early yeah oh that's right yeah they don't have to get up as early that's true mm. asphagol's like is a happy-ish yeah ending he, 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 he keeps trying to call happy. through no one's answering but he's got so much stuff to do it doesn't really matter that yeah. he's not got contact with the outside world yeah. people in hell go back to being happy so the, the tortured souls are no longer actually being tortured with exquisite boredom <laughs> they've just <laughs> gone back to faux torture that doesn't really hurt them and the the demons don't have to put up with the horrible boredom anymore so they're happy and and they actually say the reason they let Rincewind and Eric go is that they would like a few stories about hell mm. to propagate in the real world. It seems like they're going up that staircase. Look, how did you read it? Because I thought they were going up the staircase because they thought they'd run away, but they decide it would be an eternal staircase if they didn't decide to let them go. That's how I kind of read it because they did that thing where like, oh, is this now where we run and it will walk away quickly? Uh, no, I I got the I got the feeling that it was more just that you know, they, they could have caught them. Like, they're mm. demons. They've got magic powers and stuff. They could easily go onto the staircase. And this is the staircase where all the steps are labelled with good intentions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just thought they could have caught them, but they decide, no, nah, we'll just let them go. Eventually, they'll figure out how to get off the staircase. But uh, they, there are a couple other happy endings. Um, the uh, the creator of the universe is happy. 
because uh, he'd previously been discussing whether or not he could get away with using a couple of duplicate snowflakes um, and he puts one into a world and nobody seems to notice. So he's like, oh yeah, maybe now I'll do, I'll do some alphabet ones, see if anybody <laughs> notices that. And they do say it's hard to say whether the luggage was happy or not, but it's having a good time just eating demons <laughs> before it heads off to follow Rincewind. But I, it does end weirdly. Because my in my memory, like as I knew this was the first time we saw Rincewind since Sorcery, and it's only a few books later, so it's not that big a gap. But then we don't see him again until Interesting Times, which is a fair bit later. But I thought this was where he got back to Ankh-Morpork and to the university, but actually he just steps off the staircase and that's it. You don't know where he went. Presumably mm. to a kindergarten to continue his babysitting. <laughs> well, yeah, because Eric also steps off the staircase and that's the last we ever hear of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm okay with that. Yeah. You weren't, you weren't a fan of Eric? I wasn't not a fan. <laughs> I didn't get a real feel for him as a character, like yeah. beyond those teenage mm. boy tropes, but I didn't get to know him in the same way we got to know Mort, for example. But again, yeah. I mean, well, I was about to say, but Mort has a book named after him. Wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's, I mean, yeah. That's the end of the book, though. Um, what? How do we feel about the book as a whole? I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. I read it so long ago and I didn't, I sort of vaguely remembered what went on in it, but I didn't have a really strong memory of it. I kind of felt like maybe that meant that I just didn't like it very much or it was a bit forgettable. But actually, you know, even though plot-wise it's it's very much just here's some fun situations one after another, kind of in a sort of Douglas Adamsy style. Well, there's a stronger overarching narrative than there is in, say, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But I just, yeah, I just had a lot of fun. It was a fun romp, uh, which is a way that many people have described it. I didn't like it as much as you guys. Oh. Sorry. No, that's okay. Don't be um, sorry. Tell us. I really enjoyed talking about it with you. Like it made me feel like I'd not given the book as much space as I should have when I was reading it. Mm. Um, but I think because it was just so different from what most of the ones I've read myself have been the later ones and yeah. so different from those that I just felt like shortchanged or something. Like it just – and like – being Rincewind, who I had in my mind had a very specific view. And this uh, this one is one I hadn't read. It hadn't been read to me and I hadn't actually read it right. previously. So this is one of the few I haven't ever. So you're reading it for the first time. Reading it for the first time. Wow, so okay. And it just didn't have that Discworld world feel to me. Mm. It was more on the uh, satirical parody sort of side and with specific references to earthly things. And I know there's lots of references throughout all of the books, mm. but they're like he says Amazonians, which is a thing as mm. opposed to even masking that. Yeah, in the if that makes sense. So that, like, there's a few things that brought me out of the book that I didn't enjoy as much then, and yeah. But going through it with you guys, I was like, ah, this is this is a fun book. Maybe I should read it again. <laughs> but it does sound like it was lacking in fingles. It, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> definitely, definitely not enough fingles. Yeah. Yeah. No, I look. I think all your comments are very. Yeah. That, that's very fair. And, and I it, like a lot of the early Discord books, and this is something we talked about when we were talking about sorcery. Mm. A lot of them are not grounded in a single place. And that's interesting because a lot of what makes Pratchett's fantasy writing interesting is he doesn't do those sort of epic heroes journeys where people go from one place to another to another to another. Mm. And yet his early Discworld books are very much that. Yeah, totally. This is very much in that mould. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I think, yeah, I'm, I think I just have a, a softer spot for, for the other ones where it's you're just in one place and you're just like, oh, cool, get to hang out here in a place for a little while. That's probably just how I view life, though, to be honest. So, yeah. Well, some of them feel like coming home. Like you read a watch book, it feels like, oh, I'm returning to my familiar environment. Yeah. And so the arguably quite standalone books don't have that for me. Mm. It's you dip in and dip out. My favorite, one of my favorite, well, a couple of my favorite books are standalone ones, like The Truth and Small Gods are mm. probably my, uh, uh, until Moist on Lipwood came, yeah. came into being and then 
that was my favorite sect. But yeah, those two were my favorites for a very long time as a kid. Yeah, mm. yeah. Small Gods, uh, I always used to say, was my favorite, and I'm I'm going to be really interested to reread it mm. for the podcast because I I wonder if it still will be. It, well, are there any favorite bits that people want to talk about? I really enjoyed some of the descriptions of Rincewind. By the time we get to this book, we know who Rincewind is and it sort of works as a shorter novel with this crazy caper, partly because we already know who he is. But there's some great lines about him that sort of ring really true. Mm. One of the things I like is when they're going to be killed by the Tesman. He says, if there was one thing he couldn't stand, it was people who were fearless in the face of death. <laughs> it's like, that's ridiculous. Of course, you should be afraid in the face of death. One bit I really enjoyed was when Rincewind thinks quickly when they're trying to get in the door and the demon's like, oh, no, you must be dead. Like anyone who wasn't dead who came in here, well, that'd be horrible things happen to them. And Rincewind just suddenly, like as soon as he complains about the bureaucracy, Rincewind's yeah. brain that's used to navigating university bureaucracy just goes, what, you haven't been told? And I was like, <laughs> it's like the most proactive thing Rincewind has ever done in any of the books, but I just <laughs> believed it instantly because I'm like, you can't. Succeed. You can't be in a university as like a low tier person and survive without getting through that bureaucracy. So yeah, I really love that. Uh, I also really liked the description of um, Quetzal Overcodal, where he's described as half man, half chicken, half jaguar, half serpent, half scorpion, and half mad. <laughs> uh, and which to which I think the parrot says that's a lot of halves. <laughs> that's like two and a half people. Yeah, that basically lines up with my ethnicity. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a. A bit of a silly one, but I liked how silly it was when um he's talking to Wasname and Wasname goes, Yeah, probably it said. I've got to wing it to you. <laughs> sort of hand it to <laughs> you. Hand it so to you. good. He's got a lot of very silly lines, the parrot. I really like that. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit at the end of the universe where um Astrogal says to Death, Sorry you've been troubled. <laughs> and it just reminded me so much of the bit in um the fourth hitchhiker's book, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, where they take Marvin to see the creator's last message to his creation and it just says we apologize for the inconvenience <laughs> and i was like oh that's really nice um in fact there were quite a few bits of this book that really reminded me of adams more so than mm. than later pratchett did you have one you want to read george um he didn't like the sound of him being back and him being angry whenever something important enough to deserve capital letters was angry in the vicinity of Rincewind, it was usually angry with him. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it bears out when yeah. you read the books, you know. It's just, yeah, he knows himself, he knows the situation <laughs> a bit too well. I really love the, so at the end of the universe, as everything ends, uh, there's a little plink noise and matter starts reforming um, and death goes over to look at it and it's a paperclip and there's a great footnote about that. Mm. which says many people think it should have been a hydrogen molecule, but this is against the observed facts. Everyone who has found a hitherto unknown egg whisk jamming an innocent kitchen drawer knows that raw matter is continually flowing into the universe in fairly developed forms. <laughs> um, and it goes on. It reminded me of Adams. There's that great bit in uh, Mostly Harmless. Uh, they they realise where all the missing matter in the universe is. It was actually the packing stuff, the little peanuts that were in the boxes for the machines that were supposed to help them detect where all the missing matter <laughs> in the universe was. Uh. Um, but it also calls back to both Good Omens and Mort, mm. both of which talk about the way that matter reconfigures itself when you're not around so i just yeah i i like that there's an echo of that but it's a new form of the joke it's, yeah. it's kate bush cd this time it is yeah, yeah that's right it's kate bush in the glove box did i did just one? generally love all the um micromanagement stuff because it just <laughs> reminded me of previous office work that i have and i'm sure many people have yep. experienced 
So I really like, like any of any of the things, but I really liked, you don't have to be damned to work here, but it helps exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Yeah. Just really brought me back to flashbacks to the office. Now we always ask for listener questions and we did get some about Eric. So let's hear what the listeners had to say, Liz. Okay. So this one from Darren Ragnar, other than Eric, what is your favorite movie book or sketch featuring a devil slash demon, e.g. Faust, devil's advocate, Rowan Atkinson's welcome to hell speech, bedazzled, etc. Now that you've all presumably said good omens, what's your second pick? <laughs> I'm glad he's let us <laughs> off the hook from having to all say good omens. What do we like? George, do you have any favorites? I do. It was a cartoon series from the early 2000s called At Home with the Baskervilles that I don't think anyone else will know. <laughs> Tell us about it. What's that um, all about? So the Baskervilles were a classic middle-class UK family who wanted to go on a holiday. So they go on like a summer holiday and they end up going to a theme park of hell, which is actually real hell. And then they get stuck there and they're like the nicest people. So except for their youngest daughter, April, who roller skates everywhere and hates everything. Um, and so she get, she succeeds really well and then they just keep getting tortured and hurt. But they're so lovely and happy that they just keep pushing on and then and and they break satan basically because he's the (laughs) boss of this theme park and he's just trying to get money and make make the theme park work and because of this um family it can't work wow (laughs) it's really good highly recommend it it's probably on youtube how do we miss that i've never heard about this Mm, this sounds amazing i'm pretty sure it's called at home with the baskervilles they were called the baskervilles right and And they had had a dog the hound of the baskervilles where, where was this made I think it was like a UK Canada yeah. mix. That's, it was that sort of era when was, they were doing a lot of. I was going to say you could combo. not make a thing where Satan was a major character as a cartoon in the states, like because it's mm. famously which cartoon has got like the Prince of Heck who turns up, <laughs> and there's also in the Powerpuff Girls Satan turns up, but he's not called Satan. He's called like that guy oh, or really? something like that. Yeah, I think that's Powerpuff Girls. Huh. What about you, Liz? The one that kept coming into my mind, even though I tried to think of other things, um, was Jack Black. Who George hates, <laughs> and the Tenacious D film clip for a Greatest Song in the World. Oh yeah, with Dave Grohl as the devil. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, because the song is so good, and the clip is just so ridiculous, and it's just I think for me my favorite demon. And they expand Media. on that whole thing in their film, The Pick of Destiny. Interestingly, one of my things is on the list. The Rowan Atkinson sketch he mentions, which is generally known as a warm welcome in the captions, is one that I used to perform as a young man learning how to do comedy when I used to do uh, Steadfords and things and performed other people's work before I learned how to write my own. Um, and I love it. And if, you, if you're not familiar with it, it's um, Rowan Atkinson as Satan um, welcoming people to hell. I am the devil. But you can call me Toby if you like. We like to keep things informal as well as infernal. And it, like that really sets the tone for the mm-hmm. piece. It's great. Um, but there's so many things. I really like stuff with demons in it, I realized when I read this question. I've really been enjoying the Preacher TV series, which is mm-hmm. an adaptation of the comic book. A lot of Neil Gaiman's work, which uh, has demons in it. So not just Good Omens, but The Sandman has quite a few things going on. And Lucifer, a spin-off series starring his version of Lucifer. There's a TV show version of that, which I haven't watched, but I've heard it's good. Um, one of my favorite role-playing games is an older one called Enomine, where you can play as angels or demons. And it's one of the few that makes the angels uh, as interesting to play as the demons. But I really love the the way that they're portrayed in that game. But my absolute favorite of recent times would have to be The Good Place. Mm. I really love The Good Place. Yeah. I can't believe I haven't mentioned it on the podcast before. <laughs> I think um, we're just trying not to do spoilers, I think. Yeah, yeah, we're trying to avoid spoilers. And also we don't really want to talk about it while we're waiting between seasons for mm. it to come back. Because it's very upsetting. But Westworld's mm. back soon. 
Uh, <laughs> does that have any demons? No, no, but it's just it's something it's that's coming soon to fill the gap. <laughs> oh, yeah, fair enough. Also, season three of Preacher. So, you know, what other questions have we got, Liz? This one from Radio Moorpork. Is there any particular element of this madcap romp of a book that you wish had shown up again in the more well-rounded Discworld of the later books? And I think it would have been fun to have Eric pop up as the Watcher's demon slash tech guy, which I agree with the people from Radio Moorpork. Yeah. That would have been amazing. Mm. Yeah, and Radio Moorpork, we should say, is another Discworld podcast <laughs> who are doing much what we're doing. They're reading through all the Discworld books, but they're only doing the Discworld books and they're doing them in order. But um, you agree you'd like to see Eric come back? Maybe? Yes, but I would also like to see like Tezimun people come back and maybe work in Ankh Morpork as strident atheists with their like atheist church Ooh. or work with a vampire lawyer because there's um the tendency for them to be really good at bureaucracy that's hinted at earlier on. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So I feel like they would be really good at just being like a team of people who descend on like the worst cases. I had characters that I liked more and unfortunately characters that in an ancient world probably wouldn't be coming back in a more like recent times. Laviolus. Laviolus, mm. yeah. 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 So I really loved Laviolus and just his general vibe. But <laughs> unfortunately, like, so if he could come back in some way, great. I kind of would liked if demons had come back later on because this is kind mm-hmm. of the last time demons play much of a part in the disc world because we met one in weird sisters the witches summon one up to find out what's going on and then here we go to hell and we see all the demons but then they kind of vanish and like i was saying before i didn't quite understand how they fit into the larger cosmology of the disc world and i would have been interested to see like even if it was about the, the fact that they didn't fit in like the, you know the twilight of the demons or you know they they fall out of favor or what else has demonologists got going on i don't i don't know that Terry would have ever been interested in telling that story because for him it's clearly a, a bit of a joke and it's just a chance to poke fun at the kind of things that demons and demonologists get up to in other books. But yeah, I kind of I feel like I would have liked to have seen some demons come back in one form or another later on. I, I have another question off that. Why was Laviolus in hell? Mm, yeah, we don't ever find out, do you? Because he doesn't seem like someone who'd think he should end up in hell. I'm pretty sure. I mean, Odysseus leads a pretty... I don't think he angers the gods and goes to... Because presumably the ancient Ephebians have a similar set of gods to the modern disc world. Well, doesn't, like, doesn't Odysseus, like, flip off Poseidon's son and that's why the seas uh, are all in the... Oh, yeah, but, like, that's all in a that's all a bit of fun for yeah. the gods. <laughs> In the Odyssey, like it's like it's expected that if you annoy the gods, they do some horrible things to you. But also, if you prove your metal, probably one of the other gods will think you're great and decide that it'd be a great plank, prank to pull on the god that you pissed <laughs> off to, to like make sure that you're safe or something. So and they give you Ferreras. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. exactly. But he does, you know, he gets home and he proves his worth, and he does sort of lead a. I think he leads a quiet life. I, I mean, what happens to him after the Odyssey? I don't really remember. And of course, it's not the Odyssey. It's it's the Laviola, you see, um, that's not a good word, is it? Um, he's kind of, well, he's like he's like Rincewind in some ways, and I feel like Rincewind's just kind of like resigned to whatever fate befalls him. So maybe mm. he's just resigned to hell. Yeah, he just sort of ended up there through Rincewindish yeah. ways. Maybe he's not even dead. Yeah. <laughs> Next question is from Merle Noir. Eric, do you think it's really written for kids? If so, which demographic? And given how times and tech have changed since its publication, is it still accessible for young readers or is it just a nostalgia fest for us older geeks a la Stranger Things? I think the I think the nerdy jokes in it definitely have dated pretty mm. badly. I mean, there's references to video recorders and MS-DOS and, um, you know, the only one that still really holds up as against current technology is the Source Codex. And it's interesting, you know, I think if you're writing it today, 
if the demons were looking in other dimensions for inspiration and they looked at our world, like there would have been a lot more technology that's supposed to make your life easier, but just makes it more annoying stuff going on, you mm. know? So yeah, I think, I think those aspects of it have definitely dated. And I, and I know that if younger kids were reading it, they don't even know what a landline telephone looks like, let alone, you know, a, a modem. So I think some of those references would have dated, but there's not that many of them. So no. I think they just sort of would coast over their heads. Mm. As for whether it's written for younger readers, I don't. I never got that impression. And it's kind of a big question because, like, YA is not necessarily just for like it's. Mm. It's a bigger question than that. Like, it's for everyone. Kind mm. of. It is, but I also think at this time Terry was writing either adult books or books for children, and like certainly older children. Like, he wasn't writing books for tiny children. But, like, this is around the same time, uh, if I remember rightly, that he was doing Truckers and Diggers and Wings. Mm. And I love those books. Like, and I think they hold up as an adult, but I, they're also written with references that kids could understand. Again, they've dated a bit now because they're all about, like, department, old school department stores being torn down. And, um, but there's some stuff in them that's pretty universal. And all the bureaucracy in it, I think it's, it's generally something you've gone through, like, in your late teens, early 20s, yeah. 30s, as you go through jobs like this. Mm. So there's a lot that you'd miss having not lived that yeah. if it was written specifically for kids. This is like something, you know, I made the the bank heist game that I made, um, which was largely dependent on people being familiar with what an office is like. And so you had to sort of look around the office and the, and it was sort of a slightly old-fashioned office as well. So it had like filing cabinets and older computers and people writing things on post-it notes and sticking them to other people's desks. And we would get people asking, you know, hey, can kids come and play this? And you're like, well, they can, but they're not, they're going to need an adult with them because they don't understand the world of the office. Like they don't live there. They haven't experienced it. What did you think, George? Do, do you think what, I mean. Is it for kids? Is it? Do you I, think there's that perception because it was an illustrated book and people feel like that's more of a children's book thing to do? It's definitely like a stigma that comes with illustrated books and particularly comics as well. Mm, yeah. Obviously. Um, and which is less so now for sure but has been in the past. Do you find that writing, like, as you do, you know, autobiographical books and, and particularly ones that are sometimes quite serious in their subject matter, although, you know, you have a great sense of humour about them, do you find that people sometimes dismiss them as being for kids or, or being childish? Um, they don't – well, if they do, they don't tell me to my face. Um, <laughs> right. But what, what they more is they assume they're for kids. Right. They don't yeah. dismiss them. They go, oh, these this is bright and because of my style as well as fairly – Simple, flat colours, really, like, I try to make it as appealing and easy to look at mm. as possible. Um, yeah, so, like, the people go, oh, great, this is going to be for kids. And I don't have a lot of, like, if any, swearing in any of my comics. So, they, like, mm. kids can read them, but they just might not get anything. Like, they're not yeah. kid-adverse, but yeah, there's definitely that thing where they are, this isn't for me, it's for my child. Yeah, and I think, you know, your longer works that you have planned are probably going to be a bit much for some kids too. Definitely, yeah. yeah. And it will be much more for older, slightly older audiences, hopefully not too old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Or, well, if they want to, I mean, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> but there is this like, perception that if it's got pictures, then people sort of bypass it because there, there is a assumption in their head that after a certain age, you've got to read it all as words, otherwise yeah. mm, something's wrong with you. Like, which is, as in, that's not Quite, but there's like a oh, thing, no. people won't pick yeah. them up because they just assume it's not mm. for them. Yeah. And I don't think this is something that people think about the other illustrated Discworld book, which is uh, mm. The Last Hero, mm. which, you know, it has a similarly epic scale and is also about Rincewind going on a crazy mm -hmm. adventure. 
I mean, and that's illustrated by Paul Kidby because it was published well after um, Josh Kirby had, um, had passed away. So it's, it's sort of it's an interesting question. Mm. Mm. Especially since like all the graphic novels I've read recently are so very dark mm. that like if you put it in the hands of a child, I'm like, I'm sorry I've ruined your life. Yeah. Like, <laughs> do you think also it's because the title character is 13 years old? Do you think that might be why mm. some people think of it as a younger book Perhaps, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But then again, Sorcery, I guess, is not the title character, but it's about a very young boy. Yeah. Again. And Mort, too, is a quite a young protagonist. Mm. Yeah. No, but I, I mean, I feel like it's for a similar age as the other books mm. that he wrote around this time. The other Discworld books, I mean. I mean, there are references to officers and things in Truckers, Diggers and Wings, but they're all written from the perspective of people who don't understand them. So that'd be quite accessible to kids, whereas this is like, I don't really understand why this is boring and terrible. Like, mm. I, I've not been through this sort of thing. I don't know about pot plants in offices making you sad when they don't look real. Oh, that was captured so well, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what did he say? It looked like a, a, a dead bat or something. Well, because it's kind of like, it's like a metaphor for being in an office. And I'm sorry if anyone listening works in an office and loves it. I'm sure there's some great offices out there. I've worked in some, but there's like... It is like you're a living thing in a false environment, but not really. So like a fake plastic plant in an office is kind of like emblematic of what you're expected to be like as a worker. (laughs) You're not like really a person. You're person shaped and you're serving a function within the office, Mm. which is to provide a bit of life, but not really. Yeah, sure. Mm. But maybe on fancy Fridays, we can put on casual clothes. (laughs) (laughs) I did look forward to Fridays with that casual hit. Yeah, it's it's like what you normally wear, but minus the tie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we used to wear T-shirts and jeans on casual Fridays in some of the places I worked. Oof, Oof. luxury. Yeah. Well, now, I've, now I'm a freelance artist, so I can wear that all the time and have no money. It's a great combination. <laughs> well, as a freelance writer, I changed from my nighttime pyjamas into my daytime pyjamas. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Casual Friday all the time. <laughs> Fancy. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now, have we got another question? I think we, we do. Can. We have a question and then a comment. This is one from Steve Lay. Is this the best cameo by death in a non-death-centric Pratchett book? Should the next universe have started with a roll of duct tape rather than a paperclip? And now he's got a footnote coming off duct tape, which is, like the Force, it has a light side, a dark side, and holds the universe together. Oh, and yes. that is our first question with a footnote, I think. That is, it's true. And I, that is a, Steve, thank you for sharing that joke with us. That's a good question, though. Is this the best death cameo in a non-death-centric Discworld book? Because he does appear in every single Discworld book except the We Free Men. Wow. Yeah. See, I can't rank them because I just, every time death appears in books, mm. not in real life, yeah. I'm like, yes, he's here. Good. So the the feeling of joy is the same irrespective of what he's doing. Mm. I've got to say, though, I think this one is really good and I do like his various appearances. I love seeing him as a beekeeper. Bees. Mm. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry that I keep shouting bees. It's just very exciting. It's the appropriate <laughs> noise to make. Um, I think my favorite one is is probably Weird Sisters. Where he ends up in the play and he has to try and play death in the play oh, and then he forgets the words. Good. I can't believe I forgot that. It's so yeah. delightful. Oh. Um, it's just delightful. It's just yeah. a delight. He's a delight every time. But I think I think that that's probably certainly the ones we've read so far, that's my favourite. I'm gonna keep you updated with this, Steve. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and think of other ones. But do you can you think of any, George, apart from this book? Off the top of my head, like no, I just like, every time I see capital letters on the page, I just get excited. I'm just like, yeah, I'm ready for I'm ready <laughs> yeah. for this next couple of pages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he does have. I mean, he's had the great moment in this book where he's in this. You know, they summon him and he's standing behind them. That's so good. But yeah, I think Weird Sisters for me. Hmm. Following on, we've got a comment from Steve as well, which is 
My late father was severely disappointed that the illustrated Eric didn't have an illustration showing the writing on the stairs. He would have put up copies all around his workplace. Mm. That is a fair Mm -hmm. comment. If he'd had to draw it, he probably would have had to invent a whole bunch more good intentions to put on those steps. We didn't read any of them out, did we? But most of them are great. So there's uh, I meant it for the best. Uh, I thought you'd like it for the sake of the children. (laughs) And then the last one, which is the one where Rincewind stepped off and goes through a wall, is we are equal opportunity employers. And I was like reading that going, what evil do you do when that is your good intention? I was a bit nonplussed by that. I'm not sure what to think about it. Mm. Those are the only ones mentioned in the book. But if you were drawing the staircase, there'd have to be loads of them. That would have been great. I agree. Mm. But that brings us pretty much to the end. George... Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. You're working on a big project at the moment. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? I would love to. Uh, I'm working on my first graphic novel, um, which is a like really long comic for those who aren't aficionados of the form. And it is a autobiographical piece like most of my work about growing up with my brother who is on the autism spectrum. And so he has, he's quite severely autistic and it's about what it was like as a family um, having that experience. So the difficulties and the joys therein. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Highlighting the joys, but also, yeah, the difficulties which aren't often always highlighted in media. And even though that's not finished, you have released an excerpt from it as a sort of a teaser that people yes. can get their hands on along with some other comics by you and they can see a bunch of other stuff about you on the web. Uh, GeorgeRexComics.com, yep. is that right? And Google GeorgeRexComics to yep. find you They all sort places. of link to each other and the wonderful internet world. And we'll include it in our show notes. And I would like to point to the Etsy store as a great place to go. I get a lot of my cards from there, including Crichton from Red Dwarf, just saying Smeghead. It's perfect for people who know Red Dwarf, and it's also perfect for people who don't. Because <laughs> it's just a bit weird. Yeah. Yeah. I really good for everyone. I like the Scooby-Doo one. Uh, uh, fight with, Crime Like a Girl? Yeah, with Velma. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Well, we should tell you what we're doing next because we've sort of gone slightly out of order because we wanted to talk about Eric with George while she was in town. So next episode, we'll be going back a step. Now that we've trashed using exclamation marks a lot, um, we're going to do guards, guards. Yes. (laughs) Uh, The only novel I own that has two exclamation marks in the title. Uh, Thankfully, they're not next to each other. It would be the symbol of a diseased mind. But we'll be talking about guards, guards with our librarian and uh, writer and performer, Amy Nichols. Look, and again, we just want to thank everyone who's been spreading the word about the podcast, whether you're doing that by giving us a rating or a review on iTunes or just telling people about us on social media. It all helps. And the more people who find the podcast, the better, because we, we want to do this for a long time. And it's a lot easier to do that if we know we have an audience. Uh, so we'd also love to hear from you. If you've got any comments, feedback or questions about this episode, you can tweet them at us uh, or send it to us on other social media using the hashtag PrattChat7. And if you'd like to send us questions in advance for our next episode uh, about Guards Guards, you should, of course, use the hashtag PrattChat7A. <laughs> or if you really must, PrattChat8. But please use PrattChat7A. And we would really PrattChat hate that. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. Um, We'll catch you next time. Until then. So long and thanks for all the singles. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Georgina Chatterton. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast or on the web at pratchettpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag PrattChat7. PrattChat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. 
To find out more, visit splendidchaps.com.